podcast starts. Hello everyone. Welcome, if this is your first time listening to the show. And welcome back, if you're a returning listener, thanks for sticking with us. This podcast talks about horror. Horror in film, TV, other media, other items which we think of as adjacent to horror, and sometimes other things from our lives which we'd like to talk about just because that's who we are. Our discussions aim to be fun, intelligent, and hopefully useful if your interest in horror text comes from a creative or academic perspective. But be warned, we do tend to swear occasionally, and if it's anything less offensive than the C word, it won't get bleeped. So, we are probably not safe for your work, if you are still going into it. In this episode, we're looking at another missed classic from the pantheon of horror films. It's one that some of us have seen before, and some of us are only now discovering for the first time. The Exorcist 3 from 1990. If you haven't seen it before, don't worry. There'll be a spoiler-free discussion at the start of our chat, and we'll let you know before we go into spoilers. I'm T.D. Velasquez, but you can call me Dan. I'm in Greater Manchester, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello. Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. And also we're joined by Stella. Hello, Stella. Hello. (laughs) Kirsty was going to be joining us this week, but sadly work has intervened. But later in the episode, you'll also be hearing from our much-loved and occasional co-host, Howard, calling in from from Shropshire. Hello, future Howard. (laughs) Howard's now going to be on the show every week because we're bringing back a segment that Howard and I used to do on the Lee Cushing podcast called The Bag of Death, where we just root in a bag of random horror titles, select a title and talk about it for 10, 15 minutes. Um, So so that was a way that we worked out of including Howard in the podcast every week. I just phone him up and we just talk about (laughs) random films and we'll just insert it later. So it's going to be a little bit of a surprise for the listener every week. The bag of death. It's lots of fun. It really is. I I really like not knowing what's going to come out at the bag of death. So (laughs) how are you both this week? I am very, 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 very... (laughs) Very tired. Oh dear, somehow, Stella, I knew you were going to say that. Well, today, work just sent me mad, and I had to stop at about three o'clock before I frisbeed my uh, brand new Mac out the window in rage. (laughs) Enough! Um, But yeah, I'll be ready to get up early tomorrow and catch up with what I binned off today, because it just all got too much. Basically, we discovered that because we're doing loads of marking, and we discovered that the way that we used to upload the feedback is now not possible on the new software. So I've got nearly 200 marked essays with no way of putting the feedback online so the students could get it. So I thought I was going to have to email each student their feedback. So that caused much lying on the desk and going no 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 no. But I have found a workaround. Basically, yeah, it was just close the laptop and back away slowly yeah <laughs> and i'll deal with it tomorrow but you found a workaround yeah and i've made it marginally less of a faff but it's still okay. going to be a good however many hours that takes me to do tomorrow which means my marking's been put back by about a day and a half i did plan to have it all done by the end of tomorrow and we was going to get a uh, delivered wagamama to celebrate Ooh. um but uh, i'm going to do that anyway <laughs> <laughs> no, it wouldn't be Friday night without that yeah, kind of thing. So, but it's just, you know. I'd had scheduled in my diary since 
before Christmas that tomorrow would be the last day of marking, and now it's not. Oh, no. <laughs> the goalposts keep your moving back. They it's do. It's like the coronavirus. I was about to say your students can have essays with soy sauce on them, but that's probably it's all digital. five years out of date. And I mark essays in Turnitin as well. All the time. It's bloody turn it in. That's the proper. Anyway, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I know. I know. <laughs> I do with it. This is a turn it in podcast. Yeah. But I know. <laughs> I, yeah. I too have had turn it in, lose things, and go. And from then on, I do the, I, I do the bloody, the uh, feedback on a word document. <laughs> well, that's what we have to do. Yeah. But there's no way to attach it. Ah. Oh Jesus! Oh dear. Yeah. Bloody mm. Anyway. Bloody turn it in. Bloody so. students. Bloody work. Yeah. So that's uh, been my day, but I'm feeling yeah. much better now. <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm sure we're all convinced. And um, yeah, you still got Wagamama to look forward to. I know, I know exactly what I'm going to have as well. Steam. <laughs> oh, well, you must tell us now. I'm having um, the vegan ramen, big fat noodles in a nice broth with spicy tofu. Oh, if you know. Wagamaba wants to send me a free meal. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> yeah. What kind of beer can you buy and have to uh, as well? I don't know. Can't we? I'll find out. Yeah. I do like the rice beer that they have there. This is way off topic, isn't it? It really is. Carry Listeners, on. we'll we'll have to report back about the beer next week. Um, yeah, yeah. Moving us on then, Ian. How are you? I'm good. Um, I have been homeschooling, and this week because my deadlines were getting ridiculous. I had to say to my son, no school, and he was devastated, obviously. <laughs> so he has been running around having freedom all week, and I feel, God, talk about, I will never complain about having writing to do again, because having been told you can't do it, then you have to homeschool a five-year-old mm. is a really good way of making you enjoy writing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm living the dream. I love it. I'm getting up. I'm doing something for me. And, uh, <laughs> and I haven't been getting up at six to write till nine, which is what I was doing. I was doing like two and a bit hours of writing in the morning and then homeschooling, yeah. and it was killing me. Um, and I just, mm, that's nails. Deadlines are looming, so I'm in a, I'm in a happy, happy mood. Great. Oh, fantastic. So, uh, before we go on to the main topic of the episode, then, any horror news or general news that either of you would like to discuss? I've got something. Go on, then. I've, I've got nothing, like um, just what I told you before. Marking a Wagamama, that's all I've got. Oh, that's, that's, all, that's been your entire universe. Yes. So, please um, tell me something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was speaking to Howard at the weekend, uh, he delivered me some sad news from the the world of horror, which um, I should really have known. Um, We had, uh, in early January on the 4th, we had the death of a cinematic horror icon and a particular heroine of mine, Barbara Shelley, who was the star of several uh, British horror films during the kind of Hammer era. She was the nearest thing we had to a female... Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee, um, and I did. I sort of. She's one of those people who'd been around for quite a long time because uh, she was interviewed on that Mark Gatiss documentary, History of Horror, that you made ten years ago. Mm. So I knew she was still around then. But then a few years passed, and I thought she's almost certainly died, hasn't she? But I don't want to know she's dead, so I didn't <laughs> investigate. 
and then Howard told me, oh no, she's died. And in fact, um, she she uh, went to hospital with something else just before Christmas, got COVID-19, um, recovered from COVID-19, which the, the news stories were keen to stress, but then died of her original condition. Oh. So at the age of 88, and she's this is how amazing she is, apart from the fact that she was just a stunning actress who... Um, could make the the most outlandish things believable. Um, she's in a movie called The Gorgon. It's one of the the last Hammer films to have both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in, and, and it's the last one where they were directed by Terence Fisher, who was the guy who brought them together in the first place. And she plays the titular monster, a woman who transforms into the the mythical go- the Gorgon of Greek myth. And, she, and and basically the producers were like, don't worry, you won't have to transform into the Gorgon. We'll we'll just get another actress, we'll put makeup on her and we'll sort of do a dissolve so you just turn into her. And Barbara Shelley was like, that sounds rubbish. Why don't you just make me the Gorgon? I, I will put live snakes in my own hair. <laughs> and they went, nah, we'll just stick with the original plan and, and go with the actress in makeup and... And it looks rubbish. Oh. And and she was there going, I will do it. It'll be amazing. Aww. She was that committed. That, she's fantastic. And I think she she ultimately retreated from horror movies uh, when they, I think probably because they started to become a bit sexualized. And she was very firmly of the, nope, I'm not doing nudity. No, never. Which you pro- you basically had to do uh, as, a, as a female actor yeah. in those movies at that point sort from about 1970 onwards so she just disappeared and and i think she i think she retired early but um one of her movies quatermass and the pits is on britbox at the moment and stella i want you to watch this because you mentioned when we were talking about um uh, during barty's party the other week that you'd never heard of it I'd really love to to get your opinion on it. It's another one of Nigel Neal's. We should do that as an episode because awesome. I haven't watched it in years. I used to. Cratermass and the Pit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it'd be well worth it, and uh, it's one of those movies that I, I I can always go back to. I must have seen it so often. But yeah, yeah she was well, awesome. Jesus I accept your it. challenge. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> so. And your Wagamamas and your Cratermass and the Pit. Yeah. yeah, something else has than, happened to me now. Marvellous. More than enough to take your mind off <laughs> the, the marking difficulties. <laughs> okay, so um, that's the, 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 the sad piece of horror news for this week. But on the other hand, I just like the fact that I get to say, Barbara Shelley, she's amazing. Yay. Because, you know, she she's not well known enough. Um, and, and she was wonderful. Um, all right, so today we're going to be talking about The Exorcist 3. Uh, just to let the listener know, this is a bit of a thrown together at the last second, um, kind of missed classic episode. We were going to talk about something else with Kirsty, but then work intervened and, and Kirsty had to uh, bail at the last moment. So we quickly um, knocked our heads together, didn't we, and thought, we've been talking about The Exorcist 3 for a while. So we, we've done that as a missed classic um, I'm going to issue that with a caveat because normally when we do a missed classic, I think we've kind of established a formula whereby at least one person on the show has never seen the film before and one person loves it. <laughs> um, I don't know if any of us love it. I do know that two of us have seen it 
have not seen it until now and it's going to be an interesting film to get into uh maybe if we'd had a bit more prep time i would have searched the people i know for someone who loves the exorcist 3 because <laughs> I, I i'm the person who has seen it before and i do have good things to say about it but a massive fan of it um i suppose i'm not um <laughs> before we get into the discussion let's have a listen to the trailer Seventeen years ago, an extraordinary motion picture touched our most profound, nameless fears. Do you dare walk these steps again? Death be not proud, nor canst thou kill me. Satan grows stronger. You believe in possession, Father? He has found a haven. Come to take a little blood from your father. He has taken possession. The boy had been crucified. His web widens. I've just never seen anything like this in 20 years. Inside this cell. Killer drove an ingot into each of his eyes and cut off his head. Inside a man. Who are you? I am no one. A man we thought had died 17 years ago. He is inside with us! He will never get away! This time you're going to lose. The real terror is back. George C. Scott in William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3. Okay, so here we are, Exorcist 3. We're going to talk about this uh, in a spoiler-free way for the first few minutes um, and then move on to spoilers because lots of people have still not seen this film. Um, Mm. It was not a big hit when it came out and it's kind of garnered a cult following over the years increasingly so um but it's still not you know it's got some really really serious fans these days um including mark kermode actually um but i still don't think it's that well known um i would like to ask you ian Mm. first of all what you thought of it because you are the person whose favorite film much like kermode the aforementioned kermode is the exorcist and this is the sequel to The Exorcist. It's not the third sequel, despite the title. <laughs> it's a direct sequel to The Exorcist 1. It ignores Exorcist 2 completely. Yeah. Um, Ian, you haven't seen Exorcist 2, have you, or any of the others? No. But you just come straight to the... I how to explain that, because um, I do, you're right, say, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I do really, really love The Exorcist and have watched it and never tire of it and have watched it many, many times. Um, and I've never watched the sequels and I think, I think it's because, I guess because I came to the exorcist long after it had been made. So it's not like I was around in 1974 Well, I was, when I was two. Um, so I think the, the reputation of exorcist two and exorcist three kind of made me go, well, I'm not, I love the exorcist. 
but it feels to me like a self-contained story. Much, and I was just thinking, much like Jaws, I love Jaws, yeah. and I am not interested in those sequels. Even even Jaws two, I watched as a kid. Maybe I'll watch it again one day. Now my kids are wanting to watch it, but I'm feeling they just feel unnecessary and they cheapen the original. And that is, there were many things I like about Exodus three, but one of the things I don't like is it cheapens the original. It retros okay. It retrospectively, as a you know, undermines the brilliance of the first one. Um, that's interesting. Can can we get into that in a non-spoiler way, or should we save that for spoiler? Okay. So before you go into that, though, I just yeah. want to set up for for any listeners who don't know what the Exorcist Three is. Mm. Essentially, um, it came out in 1990, which is 17 years after the original. Um, following the massive success of The Exorcist, Warner Brothers produced a quickie. Well, not very quickly, four years later, sequel made by none of the same creative people. Um, Exorcist 2 The Heretic, which was a massive critical and commercial bomb. Um, as a result of that, they, they still wanted to make something else um, that kind of rescued the franchise. And they got William Peter Platy, the writer and producer of the original, to sign on to writing a further Exorcist film... That didn't make it to production. He then later turned the draft script into a novel called Legion, which was published in 1983. And then interest... That, that novel did well, so there was interest in turning that into a, into a movie, which eventually became The Exorcist Three, released in 1990. Um, it was filmed, I believe, under the title Legion, and, and later on had The Exorcist moniker added to it. And it's an interesting example of um, a different kind of sequel because it firstly it totally ignores Exorcist 2 which Blatty totally hated um, and it continues from the original only in the sense that a couple of the more minor characters from the original film uh, the, 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 the uh, excuse me <laughs> the detective investigating the the surrounding um, case surrounding the possession of Regan in the original. Um, Lieutenant Kinderman, who was played in the original by uh, Lee J. Cobb, who'd since died, and is played in Exodus uh, 3 by George C. Scott returning. This is our second George C. Scott recording in three weeks, so <laughs> it seems very appropriate. Um and uh, and his friend Father Dyer, who's also in both films, played by different actors. Um, and Exorcist 3 uh, is essentially, um, it's many things, but basically it takes the structure of a detective um, serial killer thriller with kind of elements of the plot which connect it to the exorcist and the fact that there was an exorcism in that film and, and a demonic possession. But it doesn't really... It's not the same kind of film, um, and it's not really trying to be the same kind of film. Mm. Um, it's 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 a standalone film, really, which is possibly one of the reasons why it didn't do very well, because standalone films called Something 3 aren't sending out the right message, <laughs> essentially. So, um, that's the movie. So, Ian, what were you going to say about you feel that it undermines the original? Well, um, it's probably... Best if we wait till the spoilers bit. You know me. I'll probably okay. start spoiling it. <laughs> anyway, I just think it's the... Right. I think it's the general... 
for me, I mean, I won't go on at length because Stella's not said anything yet. But um, but for me, <laughs> it felt like what I'd really like to see is a film called Legion, which has this plot and isn't isn't mm. for no good reason attached to The Exorcist, which it also yeah. then retrospectively ruins. Um, mm, okay. Because it's like a different movie, and I could enjoy it, except when they were saying, this is a sequel, just for the sake of being a sequel. So it didn't need, it didn't need, it didn't feel like the same universe as The Exorcist mm. at all. Okay. Even though it's the same author, it didn't feel like the same universe. Um, and also, the whole point of The Exorcist was it was huge, and and... Blatty was obsessed. Blatty and I've just I've just been reading an interview in Mark Kermode's, um The Exorcist book, an interview at the end of it, and the whole thing. They're both Friedkin and Blatty are both there saying, "No one, no one. The audience, the audience must know that the devil has been defeated." That was the absolutely mm -hmm. adamant. And this this is them being interviewed after you know in the nineties after this movie's been made. Yeah, it's like well, yeah. the devil's not utterly defeated. Because this horrible thing happens to the poor bloody yeah. sacrificed priest, and I just, I just felt it was, I don't know, it, 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 you know, when some movies have a sort of, oh, here's the, here's the sort of dreary Hollywood business end of things, mm. making something that could be a work of art less than it could mm. be, because everyone's had to compromise. I mean, Blatty stuck the exorcism in so it could be called the. He was forced to. Yeah. So they could call it Exorcist Three, and although so you know it was it, it just felt it, it it you know I I think there's probably scope for adapting Legion and separating it from The Exorcist. Yeah, I think mm. that would be a really good fucking film. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. there are brilliant things in this film, not not least which yeah. is George C. Scott, who's my new favourite actor because I've not really <laughs> watched him in anything for some reason. And uh, and now I'm like, oh yeah. Apart from the Changeling, which I've always watched him in, but I've never seen Patton, yeah. and I've never seen half the things he's kind of was well known for at the time. And he's amazing. No, no, he, he he's good. great, and um, he, he he's got great speeches, and and that's definitely uh, one of the things that I would rate about the movie. Before we we hear from Stella, Ian, yeah. let me just quickly ask you though: Would you recommend this? as a film on its own, not as a sequel to The Exorcist? If, if so, somebody who'd not seen any of the films was, was to say to you, shall I watch this? Uh, well, I, I'd, say, I'd, say, I'd say it still works as a film. In fact, it probably... It kind of reminded me of our conversation on Alien 3, except Alien 3 is not as good a film. But like, mm. it's the fact that I... It's the fact it kind of taints my favourite film. Yeah. A bit like, you know, they kill... Newt and Hicks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, if you don't care about those things, and I guess as a standalone, I've not seen one and two. Well, I understand this. Then it's, mm. it's probably a better film if you don't care and you haven't seen the others, because mm. you can pick up what's going on. Um, I also thought what was strange because I didn't know much about uh, Exorcist Two. Um, I kind of thought, oh, so the Gemini Killers, that must be what Exorcist 2 is all about then, is it? Because there's a lot and lot of backstory. <laughs> there's a whole murder inquiry that happens in a previous, <laughs> previous film. And you go, oh, so we're picking up on this thing. 
oh, I probably need to. I probably know. I probably would know about that if I'd seen the other film. And then you find out, no, that's all intended to be part of the backstory business. Of Exorcist. Uh, I do remember when I was a friend of mine that saw The Exorcist three yeah. before me, and before any of us had seen The Exorcist. And when I said I was watching The Exorcist, he said, "All oh, right, is the Gemini killer in it then?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, "No." <laughs> yeah. no and, and that kind of made me go. That kind of made me go. Like, why? Why he brought Jason Miller back? Well, then this is spoilers now, isn't it? Should we let Stella? Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll go on to this, Stella. Because I will moan. I will moan a bit. What 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 are your thoughts, Stella? I think. I've, I mean, I'm just looking at my scrawled notes here from when I watched it last night, and I've got written, I've written here 45 minutes. So I think what I mean there is it was 45 minutes before anything even remotely demonic even started <laughs> to rear its head a little bit. Because for the first, well, obviously 45 minutes, I've written it down. It's it's mm. just fully leaning into being uh, an investigation into a series of murders, which you know I'm yeah. all right with. Um, but it just it's just everything that Ian's just said. It doesn't feel like it's in the same place mm. at all. Like the the any elements of possession or the fact that you need the church to get involved just seemed really, really shoehorned into the end. Yeah. And by the time that had happened, I wasn't really that bothered about it. Well, they don't. They don't. They don't even come up with a good reason for the exorcist to come in. Yeah. It's literally like. Oh, my window blew open. It's <laughs> not even a conversation, or a, you know, in the in the original thing, there's there's the actually <laughs> the mother gets the breaking point, goes to a priest. Yeah, and, and it's, I mean, it's so well before we... and written, and the characters all sing, and this was a mess. Well, there are production reasons for that. Oh though, yeah, yeah, and they they didn't intend to in, include the Exorcist or anything like that. They had to. That's why I was saying it's wearing its production woes. We see them. Mm. We're not surprised yeah. to hear yeah. about them because huh, it's a bit like oh, this episode, this TV series feels like it's missing an episode, and then you read an interview where they were like, yeah, they cut the bloody episodes. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. we had six so. and we got given five. <laughs> So, so Stella, finish what you were saying, please. Um, no, well, it's, it's, it's essentially it's all the same. I mean, I've I've, I've written things down, and I've, there's also loads of question marks all over this piece of paper. <laughs> as well, so I was clearly sat there going, "Why is this The Exorcist? I don't understand why this is The Exorcist." So, at the, when the film starts, she get about ten seconds of um, is it Tubular Bells, the Michael yeah. Field? Yes. No, not not even ten seconds. Probably about three and a half seconds. Yeah. So when that came on, I went, "Ooh, yeah, yeah." <laughs> yes, this will be exciting. And then it stopped. Yeah. And then that bit was over. And then all of a sudden, we were almost watching a comedy between the detective and the priest. Yeah. The way the way yeah. their chemistry worked, I thought was really really funny. And yeah. I, uh, I particularly enjoyed the conversation about the carp. Yes, it's a it's a masterpiece. <laughs> that yeah, yeah. What? What am I watching? And it was after that that I started to get even more confused. Like I don't understand why this is called The Exorcist mm. at all. But that's not to say that I didn't enjoy the film. I think my favourite mm. bit of the film was when yeah. the 
the lady in the hospital who had the invisible radio. Yeah. When she scampers across the ceiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the best bit. I enjoyed that bit, for sure. Yeah, I would say there were were still bits, and I'd heard about them. You know, I'd seen them on the list of scariest moments. Mm. And there are sequences, which even though I was not fully enjoying the film, still did the... Did their did their job and made hairs on the back of my neck. So Stella, if uh, I'll just pull out the same question to you as I did to Ian, would you recommend it to someone who had no idea what The Exorcist was and you know didn't know anything about the film? Yeah, but I'd feel like I'd need to put a caveat on it. Okay. I'd feel like I'd need to say it's called The Exorcist Three, but try and ignore that fact. Yeah, and watch yeah, it as a fa- film on its own. Yeah, I think that's I think. fair. Yeah. Um, Basically, I'd say the same thing. Um, I think it's it's a really good, unusual, dark thriller to start with, mm. and uh, and and you know the fact that you've got these two characters, um, the uh, Lieutenant Kinderman and his friend Father Dyer, played in this film by Ed Flanders. They're like <laughs> you say, Stella. Their interplay is yeah, and isn't it amazing that he's called Ed, Ed Flanders? Flanders. <laughs> I didn't know that when that came up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh dear. Um, uh, yeah, not Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Um, uh, yeah, that their stuff is really engaging and human. There is a real strong humanity to it, um, and and that really draws you into the the mystery. And also, it gives this a horrible sense of encroaching uh lack of justice mm. and cruelty you know these horrible murders going on and we don't see any details of them it's all one of the things i really like about the film is that you 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 almost see no horror or nothing horrific but you see a lot of people's faces reacting to yeah. things they've seen or been described to them and it, it's a really nice kind of subtle way of uh of conveying that um and I think it's really well done and generally well acted and has good dialogue for the most part. But, but I don't think the whole film lives up to the first sort of half, maybe the first half hour, because mm. that stuff is really good. But I think it, it's um, actually once the demonic stuff comes into it, for reasons that I, I can't discuss without spoiling it, so we'll, we'll go into it in a minute. But I think I think it becomes less interesting when the demonic stuff comes into it, even though some of that stuff is really well done. Yeah. Um, uh, so therefore, I would recommend it to people, but I'd kind of say beware, um, <laughs> because it it kind of fizzles out. Is how I, I. By the way, this is I think the only horror film I've only ever watched during breakfast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I initially watched it during breakfast 20 years ago when it when it had its uh, TV premiere and I taped it and I watched it during breakfast this time. And your subgenre breakfast horror. I spread it over two breakfasts and for yesterday's breakfast I watched the first four minutes of the film which was mainly kind of uh, lieutenant I keep want to say lieutenant it's American lieutenant, lieutenant. Kinderman and Father Dyer just kind of talking and and this investigation is going on. And I thought it was like, a, it felt like a really good crime drama, mm. like a really good episode of Columbo or something, <laughs> but with with an edge of, I mean, I, I like the fact that it had that, but it was scattered with this edge of uh, kind of preternatural evil. Like you say, Star, that there isn't any direct supernatural stuff at the start for mm. quite a long time, but there are lots of... There's lots of weird, move, moody, atmospheric music, spooky yeah. shots, spooky mist. 
uh, and you do get a sense of something a bit unusual is going on, and also just kind of oddly in um, incongruous images, like the, you see quite near the start of the film, a load of helicopters flying over a oh, church. Yeah. Um, mm. I wasn't sure about that bit. Yeah. I thought I was watching Apocalypse Now. <laughs> I Someone going to be in Nam, and then we see them in the present day. Well, that, well, I mean that—that that wouldn't. I wouldn't put it past Blatty. It's like something out of his uh, very much post-Vietnam previous movie, which is the Ninth Configuration, and he's got a weird tendency to kind of juxtapose images in a way that's quite striking. Um, but v- Vietnam gets mentioned as well because 1990 was very much the first fallout of Vietnam. All right. In terms of in terms of you know platoon platoon just not long being out and yeah. that's when people start coming to terms. Where was the the Nam reference then? I didn't um, get it. I cannot remember, but I remember somebody being a Vietnam vet, right? And they sourced Vietnam. Well, it's it well it is mostly set in that hospital, isn't it? And there's loads yeah. of um, yeah yeah. Uh, psychologically badly affected people yeah. and that's what the ninth configuration is about as well um okay mm. so yeah so we've we've each given kind of cautious caveated recommendations for this film then uh, but we need to get yes. more into yeah. it so i'll just say it is it is scary mm. it does work in lots yeah. of ways and it does its job it's just it's just a, it's just a mess and when you read about development hell and everything you uh you just see it got ruined by the system, man. Well, yeah, and and actually, as we'll probably go into more in the spoiler section, that happened to all the Exorcist sequels, like all of them. And I don't, I, I think that's probably why you've never watched them, Ian. How many sequels are there? There's four sequels. There's a poor Schrader and a prequel. Right. So this is the thing. There's John Borman's Exorcist Two: The Heretic from 1977, which exists in two different cuts and was released twice. Then there's the Exorcist Three, which, as we'll discover, exists in two versions. Then they were going to produce a prequel, um, which Paul Schrader directed, but the studio weren't happy with that, so. They buried the the cut that he'd made and hired the director Rennie Harlin to film an entirely new version, which was then released under the title Exorcist for the Beginning. And then later on, uh, Schrader's film was re-released under the title Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. Um, and by the way, now apparently Morgan Creek have, have announced with Bloomhouse that they're going to do another one possibly with David Gordon Green attached, so good luck with that. Every sequel is so troubled or so bad that there's more than one version of it, and when there's more than one version of a film, I think you're less likely to watch even one version of it, because you're just going to think, <laughs> I don't even know if I'm watching the right one. Yeah. Apart from Blade Runner, Blade Runner got away Ugh. with that. They just resell it <laughs> yeah. every time, but you know. So, okay, shall we go into spoilers then? Hello everyone, this is Editor Dan interrupting ourselves here. Um, We're about to get into the spoiler discussion, as you know, but having been in that discussion, I kind of felt, editing it afterwards, that it really doesn't reflect the positive things about this film. Spoilers for the spoiler section, we get quite negative in terms of thinking about the film's storyline, Um, And that's the focus for a lot of it. And I think maybe 
we miss out some things which are really good about the movie because after we recorded the discussion, I kept thinking about the film and I kept wanting to read more about it. There were questions I found myself asking about it and I re-watched bits of the film. And, you know, I did find myself thinking, right, so there are a bunch of questions about this movie that we haven't addressed and there are some great things about the movie that we haven't addressed. I need to go back and insert these. So every now and then you'll hear an insert... Um, on some of them it's just me, some of them it'll be me and Ian because I managed to phone him up and have a quick chat about some of the elements that we'd not managed to talk about. Ultimately, you know, I think this is a really beautifully done film. Um, I think we'll get into how messy it is as a, an overall production. But at the end of the day, even the, the bad decisions and the enforced decisions, which we'll get into... The movie tries to carry them off with the most style possible. And, you know, it is a movie that even when I hadn't seen it, the elements of it promised so much. You know, that the photography by Jerry Fisher, the British cinematographer who worked with Joseph Losey back in the 60s and is also the cinematographer on one of my other favourite, very much mucked around, could have been great American horror movies, Michael Wadley's Wolfen from 1981. That's another movie that has existed in different cults and there was all kind of studio interference with. And funnily enough, it's another movie which features a memorable monologue about how long um, human heads continue to stay alive after they've been decapitated. In Exorcist 3, Brad Dourif does one of those. In Wolfen, it's Gregory Hines and on both occasions Jerry Fisher was behind the camera I wonder if he had a bit of deja vu at that moment also you know the editing in the movie some of which is done by Todd Ramsay who was John Carpenter's editor on the thing is really sharp the sound design especially uh, incorporating Barry DeVorzon's um, weird atonal echoey score uh, there's so much which is unusual and striking and effective even some of the religious imagery which i think was probably inserted later um to make the film seem more like an exorcist sequel even though as we say you know for the first half it's more of a cop thriller but you get this title sequence set in a church in which there is a preternatural wind and um, the statue of christ's eyes open for some reason um, it's it's an interesting and, and arresting opening and I think they're trying to do the most they can to, to do something cool and stylish with it um, whether it all fits together and works in the story well um, I don't think we think it does so let's get back to that discussion and listen to what Ian and Stella have to say there and every now and then there'll be an interruption where I will look at a different point a different question or a different thing that's great about the movie. Oh, it isn't that tagline wonderful. Dare you walk these steps again. Those steps are hardly in the film, of course. But it's a great tagline and a lovely poster. Spoilers! So, Alright, everybody, you've had fair warning. Ian, take it away. Fire the first volley of <laughs> spoilerific cannonballs. Um... It's the whole, I mean, a, a, 
it's 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 the serial killer doesn't fit the naturalism of the first film, and then finding out that, and th- and then Brad Dourif being in it, mm. and good as he is, I love him. It's like I thought, oh, they just crowbarring him in because he was the he was the Gemini killer in Exorcist Two. Then you find out no, right? <laughs> he's he's just what he looks like now, and then. They crowbar in Jason Miller, mm-hmm. but actually Jason Miller is what he looks like. So he is the reanimated corpse of of the priest from the Father Carus. Yeah, that is, and and the, and the dialogue goes. The dialogue is very expositional. As well. Oh God, yes. There is very much, well, once there he is arrives. Much, anyway, I found, I found, I found the. Uh, you know, I found the I found the body on the bottom of the steps, and yeah. ah, I was dead. No, I wasn't dead, but the evil made me reanimate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, for fuck's sake, none of that's necessary. And and it, Father Carras threw himself out of a window to save yeah to save Regan O'Neill. And if you then say, oh, and then the demon got back inside and made his body come alive. <laughs> That's from a different universe. That's from a different universe. There's a weird hint that he crawled out of the grave or something, or crawled out of his coffin. So he's basically a, he's basically a zombie in a, and all of that tortuous stuff isn't necessary if no. you're not trying to make it a, a a sequel to The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah, and not even yeah. a good sequel to The Exorcist. Yeah, because when you read the when you read the, I mean, they say Exorcist Two Heretic. Is one of the worst films ever made, and I've never seen it. And I think we should actually watch it. Oh God, I, I've been there and done that. I don't know. I don't know if I can face it again. Ian. Is it? Is it? Is it bad then? Because yeah, yeah. Because a, it's got a good cast, and b, it just looks like a straightforward. Okay, I could imagine. Maybe not very imaginative, but it does seem to carry on from The Exorcist. Yeah. yeah. It, on paper, yeah. it makes sense. It's Reagan O'Neill later. Yeah, but it... I could imagine somebody who was possessed by Satan. Maybe having psychological problems later on. <laughs> you think? And some <laughs> other the plot to mind there. But having having a backstory serial killer, mm. which is to be quite involved to the point where I really thought, oh, this probably makes more sense if I've watched the mm. other film, because mm. he goes on about murders and fingers and yeah and oh and everything. I was like, I definitely had the feeling of missing an episode. Right. And then... was the was the finger missing fingers ever resolved? He just, he just chopped things off because that's what he did. Just for giggles. Uh, yeah, he, not not for any particular reason. He'd been sent to the ele- he'd been sent to the electric chair, so the whole story had been wrapped up, and the whole thing was he's dead, yeah. and yet this person is committing these murders. And then we go into the cell, and it's like he looks like Father Carus for two minutes, and then he looks like somebody else. <laughs> yeah, for no reason. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and actually, and and. God bless Brad Dourif, but we didn't need him. I mean, is, no. is Jason Miller a bad actor? Did they think? Did they think they couldn't get him to go? I'm being the demon now. No, I'm not being the demon because they seem to think a twelve-year-old girl could do that in the first one. <laughs> so, so we didn't need Brad Dourif. What's weird is that in the original cut of the film, J- uh, Jason Miller wasn't in it, and it was just Brad Dourif. But then when the producers stepped right. in and, and said, you must make it more exorcist call it the exorcist, have an exorcist, get Jason Miller, maybe may, maybe Blatty kind of thought, well, I can't just fire Brad Dourif, he's great. What I'll do is I'll give some of his lines to Jason Miller, but still let him have the good bits. Maybe, I don't know. Um, That's, I mean, what about, but 
<laughs> well, what was the rationale for Brad Dourif then? Because um, I thought Brad Dourif was supposed to be the old... Yeah. He was supposed uh, to be the old guy who who was dead and in the ground. Uh, that's true. So he was imaginary. Okay. So, so the guy who he actually looks like is the dead body of the... Of yeah, the, I know. Of, 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 I can't. I can't stand the confusion in my mind, Ian. As a viewer, you're going. He's he's certainly seeing a lot of the imaginary person. Usually, it's the other way round. You'll see. You'll see the person that you'll see reality, Mm -hmm. i.e., in this case, Father Karras talking, Mm -hmm. and occasionally we'll see the underneath Mm -hmm. demon. I would argue we don't need the imaginary person at all, because the Exorcist is all about. You don't see Pazuzu in. You don't see the demon no. in uh, in the Exorcist. No. It's a it's a little it's just her performance, talking. isn't it? And the voice and the voice yeah. is different. Yeah, but it's always just the body. You walk in and you see Reagan O'Neill disfigured and. Torn. By the way, it's Reagan McNeil. I don't want to take away your cred as an Exorcist fan, but you don't, but you don't superimpose it with they don't superimpose it with a with a demon from Iraq going. Oh, this is who's really talking. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear Ian you've got to learn to form an opinion <laughs> questions of the exorcist 3 why does Brad Dourif appear on camera far more than Jason Miller does as Father Karras is there a reason well, I think uh, we didn't uh, we weren't clear on this when we talked about it but I have done some additional research and I've found some articles online suggesting reasons. There's an article on bloodydisgusting.com and an article on Den of Geek. I'll put these links in the show notes. Um, it's not entirely clear, but basically it's, it, it seems to be the case. And this is one of the reasons why I've now decided I want to watch the director's cut. In the original version, Brad Dourif was playing... Father Karras. He was actually supposed to be Father Karras, who is occasionally possessed by the demon. And uh, and they did approach Jason Miller to play it, and he was either not available or unwilling. So they shot it. But then when the studio said, right, you know, you've got to make it more exorcist get more actors in from the original and things, um, Blatty... Um, tried to think of anybody else who could be included but he could but he couldn't think of a way to crowbar in other exorcist characters so he went back to jason miller um and and jason miller could be persuaded to join the production this time but either because he was depends who you speak to um either because he just didn't have the time he was too busy to film all the scenes or because he had a, an alcohol problem and he and his memory was just really bad. He couldn't remember lines very well. Um, that They basically decided he couldn't do the whole... He couldn't replace all of the scenes that Brad Dourif had done. So they rewrote it so that it sometimes appears as Father Karras and sometimes as the Gemini Killer, but mostly as the Gemini Killer. Um, and... Yeah, I, I think that's a, a sad explanation, but it does make sense with yeah. what you see because I think Miller is very good in the film, in the bits that he's in, but yeah. he only has generally very short lines or he's yeah. he's just silent. Um, and I think, uh, you know, as we said in the discussion, or I think we implied, you'd expect that mostly it would be 
you'd be seeing Jason Miller with flashes of Brad Dourif at kind of key moments. And I think that they did realise that. And you can tell there's one moment where um, George C. Scott goes over to him and it's Jason Miller and, and he kind of leans close and says, Damien. And then there's a hard cut to Brad Dourif going, no, it's me. You know, yeah. things like, I think they probably wanted to do a lot more like that, but they couldn't make it work. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, so I get, so I guess Brad Dourif is supposed to be Father Karras, uh just as, just as, uh, just as Ed Flanders is supposed to be well, just, Father Dyer. Just as George C. Scott is, yeah. he's also supposed to be uh, Cobb. Yeah. Ed Flanders is supposed to be Father Dyer, so it's just part of that. Yeah. These are the same characters with different actors, yeah. which we can get, get our head around. It's the fact that studio interference made them do a bit, bit of half rice, half chips, yeah. and please nobody. Yeah, it was, either, it was either have the balls to replace Brad Dourif with with Jason Miller, or just leave Jason Miller out of it. Yeah, um, but the fact is, I, in a way, I could care less because the things that are wrong with. Exorcist Three are trying to make are trying to make it a sequel with this ridiculous plot. Whether it's Jason Miller or Brad Dourif yeah. as Father Karras, the plot is still utter bobbins, and <laughs> I just don't like it. I like it. I like it as a. I like it as a, like I say. I, I actually really want to see he's got the rights to Legion now because I think making it a standalone, not a sequel. Uh, as something would be bloody brilliant, um, and you'd still get the sneaky bit of uh, it's it's by the guy right, The Exorcist, and it was it was The Exorcist three, but we're doing it the good way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> One of my questions about The Exorcist three, about which I think there are many great things, um, but I have lots of questions about it, including questions about things which have come to be seen as great, and one of my questions is. The story, is it satisfying? It, does it really make sense? And therefore I want to tell you both my understanding of the story and you tell me if I've got it right. Because in a way, <laughs> it's quite a nice example of a film that doesn't spood f- feed you too much with what's going on until it does, until it really does. Um, so, yeah, yeah. so okay, so it's 1990 in Georgetown, right? Yeah. It's... 17 years after the, the exorcism of Reagan McNeil, which yeah. is completely irrelevant as far as we know. <laughs> and also 17 years after there was a, a, a killing spree by someone called the Gemini oh, Killer. 15 oh, sorry. years. 15 no, 17 years, years in yeah. production terms, but they say 15 years in the film, that's right. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, but 15 years since the Gemini Killer, I think. Well, no, uh, I think the idea <laughs> is that well. the Gemini Killer... <laughs> Uh, well, the, basically, I read a review by Kim Newman where he must have been paying more attention than me or something, but he said that the, the the idea is that the Gemini killer was executed at the exact moment that Father Karras leapt out of the window at the end of The Exorcist, and that's how Pazuzu oh, was right. able to funnel the Gemini killer's spirit into Karras's body because he was dead already, you know. Um, all right, so the, so, the Gemini, <laughs> so the Gemini killer did all the things he did Without demonic yeah. interference. Yeah, he was, he was just a guy. Just a, your, your standard yeah. workaday serial yeah. killer. So he, 
That's even shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, wait. Uh, okay. No, no. Right. Okay. So let. I know you're not going to very far down this, but but my understanding is that the Gemini killer, Pazuzu, jumped out into the Gemini killer, did all that crazy shit, and then was able to jump into Father Karras's corpse. Well, as he was dying, and then it took him fifteen years to get him get himself back together so he could start killing again. Well that yeah that it did take him fifteen years to get himself back together. And and I think you could maybe argue that when the Gemini was doing the original killings, he was being possessed by Pazuzu or something. Maybe there is a link, but the film doesn't go into it, so we kind of have to make assumptions. So let me just finish my plot summary. So it's fifteen years after the Gemini killings. More killings start to happen they have the same memo as the Gemini killer, but only the police know yeah. that. The police are led yeah. by Lieutenant Kinderman, the cop from The Exorcist, who was friends with Father Karras in that movie and still uh, misses him. And he and Father Dyer go to the cinema together to watch It's a Wonderful Life every year to remember uh, Father Damien. I think that's lovely. And the whole stuff about their friendship is what I like the most in the movie. Yeah. Um Oh, uh, Stella, you were just making a kind of vo- uh, vomiting face, I thought, and oh, then just, you said, yeah. <laughs> just about It's a Wonderful Life, not about that. Right. Just It's a Wonderful okay. Life, I can't help but go, yeah. <laughs> right, okay, no, fair enough. Puzzle. It's an amazing film. <laughs> uh, it's not to everyone's taste, but, um, okay. Uh, so, they start to investigate the... It's equally my, it's equally, sorry, it's equally my favourite film. Alongside the We're not no, discussing it, it on the podcast. It's a, well, you've already had time on the Christmas episode to go on about it. It's a Wonderful Life, Ian. And you, yeah. I agree with you for what it's worth. It's a wonderful film. It's very dark. Um, yeah. it, it's not as sickly as people think, but it's not to everyone's yeah. taste. Um, okay, so yeah, they start to... In, it, they're investigating these killings, of which there have been several, and they discover that although the MO is the same, the fingerprints on each... Uh, victim are different so it's being carried out by different people then uh, Mm -hmm. Father Dyer goes into hospital where he becomes one of the victims and uh, this brings the police to that hospital where uh, Kinderman finds that there is an unknown, unnamed patient there who appears to be Father Damien from the Exorcist who he thought was dead and as Kinderman starts to talk to him we discover that he seems to be the Gemini killer, reborn somehow in Father Damien's body. Um, so is that all correct? Have I followed that well enough? Oh, sorry, let me just... Uh, and the Gemini killer then explains, right, I have been possessing all the people and getting them to do the killings for me, and you must go to the papers to tell them that it's me, the Gemini killer, I am back. And And if you don't do this, I will obviously threaten your family. Um, Kinderman manages to avoid the threat to his family and then ultimately kills Karras. That's the plot. Although they've now, they also bolt on an exorcism bit at the end (laughs) whereby an exorcist called Father Morning played by Nicole Williamson, who no one else in the film ever speaks to is somehow summoned. (laughs) He just appears, doesn't he? I love Nicole Williamson as well. He's brilliant. Yeah. To waste him in that way. Yeah, yeah. No, he's completely brilliant. Um, but yeah, he, he basically he turns up at the end of the film, tries to exercise Damien, fails, and then um, George Scott turns up and does what he's going to do at the end of the film anyway, which is kill Damien. Um, 
And I think that plot summary makes the movie sound shit. <laughs> um, do, you, do you all agree with that's it's what fair, happens? It's, it, it's yes. a fair summary of, mm. of the shit plot, because it is a mess of a plot. Because mm. it's like, kill me now! Yeah. It's like, why? You go down a fucking pair of steps and apparently you can, then you can go on to possess bodies. Yeah, yeah. And that was after a priest fucking exercised you. So This time I'm just a cop with a fucking 48. <laughs> Exodus 4, of course I escaped. I, I only got shot in the head. <laughs> well, that worse has happened in horror movies, Ian. Um, I, what I would say about that plot is that the film does that plot really well up until about halfway through. But the, if you have a murder mystery where halfway through it you're going, all oh, the clues are coming together, all, all, all the the MO of all the victims is the same, but they have different fingerprints. What's going on? And then some. It was intriguing. Then someone goes, "Oh, there's a bloke in that room there," and you go in the room and say hello, and he goes, "I'm the killer. I did it. Let me tell you about it for an hour." That is not the yeah. best way to resolve that plot, and that is basically what the film does. Yes. Um, and that, yeah, it's just, it's 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 a mess in so many ways, and then they've cr- and what makes it even worse. Is is then, whether by design or pressure from the studios, or I think it's a mixture, because he did he did write Legion yeah. with this connection, which I've read, yeah. Which is not it's not all on, you know, it's not all on no. the studio, but then they kind of went, oh, we need an exorcism in it, or else it's not the exorcist, is it? And 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 I and I and and the thing is, I would say. Yeah, Blatty, what were you doing making a sequel to The Exorcist that had no exorcism mm. in it? And the demon is a bit prosaic because he's bothered about the fucking newspapers. Well, and it's, it's it's just it just it, but but like you say, it's it, it's individually amazingly crafted scenes. Some, yeah. So things that are great about The Exorcist three, the dream sequence. Ian, we never mentioned the dream sequence. I know. I. Thought as soon as we finished and we were chatting afterwards, and as soon as I logged off Zoom, I went. We never mentioned the dream sequence. It's, it was there in massive letters on my pad, and I kept about to be about to be saying it. And then I'm so conscious that I'm a big rude ass that talks over Stella and you that I, I waited my turn, and then we moved on to other things in between as we managed to not talk about it. It's an extraordinary sequence. It is, as Stella said when we were messaging about this. Mad as tits. It's a bizarre part of the movie, the sort of thing you would not get in uh, in the original Exorcist, which is kind of mostly mostly naturalistic, bar the odd bit of montage. Well, there are a um, couple of dream sequences in the Exorcist, aren't there? You know, there's the bit yeah, where yeah. Father Damien sees his mother going into the subway station and stuff. Yeah, 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 no, you're right. I mean, there are, there are, there is that sort of montage element to it, but they're very, they're very subtle. But I'd say that this, in a weird way, much as The Exorcist 3, our, big, our biggest complaints were that it doesn't feel like the same universe as The Exorcist, I think this dream sequence could probably, you know, would be fine, is fine, and actually is very interesting. Um, yeah. It's, so, it's, uh, it's sort of Terry Gilliam does The Exorcist for yeah, a few minutes, yeah. isn't it? So for the listeners, the dream sequence is early-ish in the film and it's Lieutenant Kinderman finds himself in a strange uh, spectral 
train station run by angels, um, including uh, like a string quartet or a small orchestra jazz band playing music. And parts of it seem to be a, a field hospital, which I think, Ian, is where the Vietnam reference comes in that you mentioned. Uh, yeah, but there's also a bit of Vietnam mentioned in dialogue in the hospital later. Oh, okay, right. Um, so, so it's kind of it's present as it is in all American life, right? Yeah, especially in 1990, when yeah. it's you know when it's half a generation earlier. It's a theme now. Yeah, I think this um, this dream sequence is great because it because it's uh, the the imagery is fascinating. And you get some kind of touching moments like Kinderman meets the uh, child victim, Thomas, who is the first victim in the film and, and speaks to him and says, I miss you very much, Thomas. I'm sorry you were murdered. Um, and you also get to see the, the priest, well, all the victims of the killer whose heads were removed are there, but have their heads sewn back on again, which is extremely disturbing piece yeah, of imagery yeah. you can see the stitches um and then of course you this is my favorite thing about the sequence is that it's the last time in the film that you see father dyer it it prefigures his death he's not yeah. been killed in the film by this point yet and yet kinderman is dreaming of him sitting there with yeah. stitches round his neck and he says to father dyer are you dreaming this dream as well and he says no bill i'm not dreaming and that's when we cut oh. to Kinderman getting the phone call with the news yeah. about Dyer. Yeah. I think there's loads yeah, yeah. of lovely it's, stuff uh, in it. It's, it's uh, I mean, the whole film, as, we, as we've said, is, is a bit, it's a bit, you know, it's very patchy. Um, I don't think if the film wasn't patchy, this bit would be fine as well. Um, it's not, it's not one of the problem areas for me no. of the movie. Although weirdly, did you know that when they obviously when they reshot sections and inserted the character played by Nicole Williamson and stuff, they obviously had to remove certain scenes that were already going to be in the film to make room for the new stuff. And I think it's kind of strange that they didn't remove this because beautiful as it is, it doesn't really have any follow through or you know any real impact on the rest of the story. Well, when I when I was watching it, I was I was kind of thinking, oh, I bet he ends up back in this room, toward in the third act or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and so so in a way, it's 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 the, the whole thing is a you know the whole movie is a mess made by it's a mess made by some really talented people and it's a mess for various reasons yeah. and it's 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 you know as as it's you know it's a as happens with in the movie industry. Yes. Great, great, talented people can get together and it doesn't quite happen on the day. And all these different, you know, it was in development hell and then the studios, it didn't come out of development hell, it just got made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In development hell. Um, so, uh, I think the difference between it and Exorcist 2, which is also supposed to be awful, and I know you haven't seen that and you asked me about it when we talked and I have seen it, the difference between the two is that Exorcist 2 has all the talent behind the cameras. You know, it has the amazing cast. It has uh, Ennio Morricone music. It has returning people from The Exorcist. It has a wonderful director in John Borman who's made some incredible films. 
Yeah. But none of it works, and you can feel it not working while you watch it. I mean, you look at it, and like Richard Burton's performance is awful. He's a great movie star. He's dreadful in this film. Um, whereas in Exorcist 3, I think that the the quality, the talent is there on the screen, and you can feel it. It yeah, just yeah. doesn't work as a whole when it comes to the narrative. But the, yeah, no, no, I mean, I don't, I don't hate the movie. I won't be in a hurry to watch it again or tell people you've got to watch this film. As mm. I think we sort of said in the main recording. Amy's death, that big long shot down the corridor, which is rightfully yeah. very famous. Yeah. You could you could watch that without knowing any any of the context, and it would. No, it was great. And it would scare the Jesus out of you. Uh, absolutely brilliant. Well, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you both about that. So you both love that bit, do yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I can't, and the reason I can't is because it was spoiled for me before I saw the film. So I will never know if it was scary. And in fact, it was. My friend, thank you. No, no. <laughs> um, yeah. My friend Brendan, who I mentioned earlier, came up to me and said, "Have you seen The Exorcist Three? It's so shit. It's got one of the worst scenes I've ever seen in a horror film, where this bloke in a, a flowy white robe suddenly appears with a big knife <laughs> for no reason." Um, so I, I kind of ha- a I had that, that scene spoiled, and I had it in my head as not being very good. So then when I watched it in the film. It's not like the context of the film enabled the scene to become good because that scene has no context. It does not belong in the film. Or at least I don't think it does. I don't really understand why it's there. What's... We don't know who she is. We don't know who the killer is. It's just another murder, isn't it? That's all it's there to do. Yeah. But... yeah. It just... It just, it just, just yeah, it's just kill. another murder, but he'd, he'd sort of said... He'd, he'd sort of said, oh, it's a shame about <laughs> Amy. Does that justify it? Yeah. Well, no, no, it's just, it's just another. It's just no, no. It's just he's he's a serial killer, mm. and his his way of killing is to send, is to go and get weak and yeah, feeble people. I understand that easily overpowered <laughs> to go and murder people. Um, so it's so it's so it's just a kill, and it's a really well done kill. Yeah. Um, it, it, and also having that decapitation thing is 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 a really good and unusual thing. Yeah. So, as you can hear, I was pretty ambivalent about this particular part of the film, The Death of Amy. Um, But I kept thinking about it, as with everything else. So ultimately, I went to Twitter and I, um, I typed this. Calling horror creators for your opinions, The Exorcist 3's fated jump scare, one of the most frightening moments in cinema, or just an ordinary boo moment given a long build-up? And I did get some responses. Our friend Luke Richards, who um, has guested it on some of our Halloween podcasts, said, I think it depends on the viewer. If it's someone who gets scared easily, then it's a massive shock. If you're a horror fanatic, you will know something is coming, but not sure what. I think it's a good scare, which balances well with the director's style. And then uh, Grimfest, at Grimfest, just simply said, Great jump scare. And then our Ian responded and said, It made me soil my armour. So... You know, from that very, very small sampling, it seems to work for everyone. And I think ultimately it did make me jump, even on repeated viewing. As I said to uh, Ian over Twitter, 
Um, I knew what was coming. So I was having my breakfast and I made sure that I took my breakfast off my lap just in case. And it still makes me jump. Um, even though I know what's coming and even though I'm not really sure why it's there. Um, ultimately, the the timing of it, the very long build-up, the suspense, the false scare in the middle, all of that stuff does contribute to it being a really powerful moment. And I think on its own terms, it belongs in the column of things that are great about Exorcist 3. I do still have issues with what it's doing in the film, and my particular issue is that it doesn't really contribute to the narrative build of the film. Nothing from that sequence really has an impact later on in the movie, and I feel like it should. However, you know, that just takes us back to the, the numerous script and narrative problems plaguing the movie that um, we discuss kind of constantly in our main discussion. But on its own merits, there's a great thing. I tell you what, another, th another thing that makes no sense is they make a great big deal about it being, this person's obviously a medical expert. And then it's like, no, he's a nutter. He's just he's, chopping heads he's, off. He's a, he's, a, he's a demon from ancient Babylonia. <laughs> And uh, inside a body of a zombie priest <laughs> who's got no medical training. And it's, so, so, so there's so many things that just... Uh, I think the, the idea is that the killer is reusing the MO that he used when he was alive. So he must have known that stuff oh, previously. Right. But then because that feels... Because that's... I mean, there's back... I tell you what's wrong. It's, 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 it's a sequel that then requires you to not just go... 15 years ago, there was a thing you've seen in the other film. It's 15 years ago, there's a thing you've not seen in the other film and another series of murders, which sound like a film in their own <laughs> right, don't they? And, you, and your brain's going, what? Yeah. It's, it's going, Why? What? I'm not watching The Exorcist. This is bizarre. Yeah. Because the, I, I've not seen Exorcist 2, but the plot to Exorcist 2 is, how many years is it since The Exorcist? Let's find a reason for whatever, whatever what, you know, it's four years later, so she's 16, great. And now it's, right, for whatever reason, Mr. Blatty, it's now 1990 when this film's going to come out. So don't mention anything else in between yeah. the exorcism and and 1990. Or else you're going to confuse the <laughs> fuck out of us. And the mud in the waters. Mm. And as a plot, it is just a mess. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you could have had... You could have had... Okay... I mean, I don't want this because I don't want it to be Father Karras' zombie corpse because that's shit. That's not from The Exorcist. <laughs> that's not something that's a zombie that happens film. in The Exorcist. It's a different yeah. genre. Yeah, I mean, it's a reanimated corpse, for fuck's sake. From, you know... Oh, it's just it's just silly. So, so, but, okay, okay, so you can have zombie Karras if you must. You don't need to have the Gemini killer. You yeah. can just have... You can have the whole thing of it's taken 15 years. To st All I've been is catatonic because actually I'm a zombie and now I'm getting my powers back. Mm. That's enough. I don't think zombies are that energetic. <laughs> what you always say when you're looking through scripts is why now? The why now is not very compelling. Ian, I can sense that you are, you've got steam coming out of your ears. I'm going to give you a break for a second. We'll go to Stella. Stella, you, you love true crime and serial killer stuff. I do. How did this work for you? And also... I, I understand that you know that the writer was taking some inspiration from the Zodiac from killer. From the Zodiac killers. Is it, oh god, really? I didn't even know that. But I'll get I'll get to that. 
Right. So okay. early on in my notes here, I've got serial killer and possession. Great. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's two of my favourite things in one place, but not executed very well. So anyway, so the Zodiac Killer uh, was active in Northern California in the 1968-1969. And what's assumed to be the... So the Zodiac Killer wrote lots of letters to newspapers. He wrote ciphers, um, codes for people to crack... Um, five victims have been attached to him, or them, um, and the case remains open in, the, in some parts of California. But his last letter was to the San Francisco Chronicle on the 29th of January 1974, and in the letter he said, I saw and think The Exorcist was the best satirical comedy that I have ever seen, signed yours truly. Then he goes on to other Zodiac rants that's not relevant. Sure. So this letter... Uh, the last letter that Zodiac wrote to the San Francisco Chronicle or any press um, was a response to an article in the San Francisco Chronicle on January the 11th, 1974. So what's that? Two weeks before. Um, and this article detailed the audience reaction to The Exorcist, the first one, um, at the North Point Theatre. Now, this theatre was three and a half miles away from the Washington and Cherry intersection where on October the 11th, 1969, taxi driver Paul Stein was murdered, only 1.7 miles away from where the Zodiac uh, was picked up in Stein's taxi. Um, he was only five more miles out away from um, one of the lakes where the Zodiac also killed two of his other victims. So the Zodiac killer, or Uras, has seen The Exorcist and then written into the San Francisco Chronicle and said, I thought it was great, I thought it was really funny. From that, the fellow who wrote Legion, Blatty, mm. is it? He has yeah. taken oh, yeah. some inspiration from the Zodiac Killer in creating the Gemini Killer. So there's various yeah. parallels between the two killers. Um, so with, uh, you know, your Damien fella in the movie wanting people, wanting the press to be involved, the Zodiac mm. Killer was very, very insistent that all of his crimes and all of his letters were all printed in the press. He even insisted that he wanted to see people in the town or people in the San Francisco Bay Area wearing pin badges with his crosshair symbol on it. He was such a wanker. And, right. and when the press didn't print what he wanted to print, he sent more threatening letters saying, I'm going to start picking off kids coming off their school buses. I'm going to start planting bombs. So he was threatening all the time to the mm. police and to the press. If you don't do what I say, I will do more, which is what the, the reborn Gemini killer is doing in the film. Um, but it's, it's, it's a messy... Apart from that, that's kind of a very loose basing on these real life events so mm. with the killer with the gemini killer he's decapitating and then mutilating the bodies after by cutting their fingers off the zodiac did none of that he mainly shot people um right. and then in in the exorcist 3 that did they say the gemini killer was putting us had a symbol on the victim's hands yes pointing the symbol of the yeah. gemini on the yeah. hands the zodiac yeah. didn't do that either he just had his crosshair symbol that he drew himself on a on a black jumper um, and then right. scratched onto cars as well nearby where his victims were. So it's why was the Zodiac Killer called the Zodiac Killer? Then? There's a few um, a few theories going around <laughs> in in the in the serial killer world. It's generally thought of as a bit shit when they give themselves their own name. Usually, it's the press that, or the police that will sort of dub them a name. But the mm. Zodiac called himself mm. the Zodiac, and it's like nah tosser right. um and the who else gave himself his own name the night stalker 
Richard Ramirez, he tried to have everyone call him um, Knife Man Jack, but it was like, nah, mate, that <laughs> shit. I'm going to call you the Night Stalker. Yeah. So the Zodiac called himself a Zodiac. So um, the two victims that he killed by the side of a lake, he scratched, or he wrote on a car, actually, um, the dates of the previous kills and his little crosshair symbol, and basically, like, you know, love and kisses the Zodiac. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, th- that's kind of what he was up to. The case remains open. Most people thought it was a guy called Arthur Lee Allen, but the DNA testing in 2002 eliminated Allen after living a life of being accused of the, as the Zodiac, which was not a real fun time mm. for him. Um, and I think really, apart from apart from the Zodiac, allegedly the Zodiac killer writing into the newspaper and saying, I think the exorcist is great, mm. there's not really that much of a basis going on there. <clears throat> and then why I think there's two killers, so... This is just to put my true crime hat on even further, ram it down over my eyes. Um, the Zodiac killer was sending letters into the newspaper and he was gloating over the kills that he'd done. And the one of the letters that he sent in, it had a number of deaths lower than what had actually been attributed to the killer, but the police had just not released the information of the last death. So the Zodiac killer's writing in and saying, I've done... But you say, I've done four now and you've not caught me, mm. blah, blah, blah. But five had been done by that point, right. but the police had just not released it. So it was like, if that was you, you would know that you'd done five and you'd gloat about five. So there is a fair bit of chatter in and around the internet that it was the work of several killers and it was essentially a case of copycat work because right. it's never been caught. And even at one point they thought... Um, might have been Ted Kaz- Ted Kaczynski, the Unibomber. He was being blamed for it for a while because they had no fucking clue what to do. Oh. So I think there was one incident with a guy going, ooh, I'm the Zodiac, look at my nice cool symbol. And then loads of other people or several other people got on board and copied what he was doing because at that right. time in the States, the, oh. the amount of serial killers on the loose was just escalating. So I think people who were that way inclined just wanted to jump on a bandwagon and get famous for it. So yeah, mm. there we go. That's where the any loose similarities between the two killers are. Well, that's a fair really theory, just because of the letter. Stella, as to why there's more than one Zodiac killer, and it does bring us back to the Exorcist three in the sense that this movie is a kind of articulation of that idea, and yeah. the, the the Gemini killer is several why, why, killers. Why is there yeah. more than one yeah, that's the why the title. Yeah, and that's why it's called Legion. We yeah. are. We are I am called Legion because we are many. Yeah, yeah you know, um, but. Yeah, yeah, from uh, from Mark chap, uh, ver, chap, uh, chapter five, verse nine. Oi! I, I should say that I'm the Catholic. Um, no, yeah, I've got it written down on my pad. My name is we Legion. Are many. We are many. And Luke eight thirty. Legion's in Red Dwarf says that as well. It does. Yes, excellent. <laughs> Not many people talk about Legion from Red Dwarf on podcasts. I imagine. So oh, can we do a Red Dwarf there. episode? Yeah. <laughs> I think I think we could. Let's pick the scariest episodes of Red Dwarf. I think I think Rimmer saying "Hello, my pretty," and um, Mister Flibble's Mr. very cross. The king of the potato people won't let me. Those are both scary episodes. It's going off topic. Yes. Sorry, Ian, you're about to start ranting again. I think. No, no, no. Just you, you'll you'll set me off about Mister Flibble. But um, again, the, the Gemini killer thing. I was kind of a little bit 
angry with Blatty when I found out he it's almost like he'd got off on an actual serial mm-hmm. killer. Oh, brilliant! That's really cool. <laughs> Mentioning his work, he was like, "Oh, that's so inspirational." So it feels. So it feels a bit tasteless. Yes. Did you read the thing that apparently this film was a favourite film of Jeffrey Dahmer as well? And that seems in a number of the sources that I read that that was noted as if that's a credit to the film. It's like, uh, <laughs> no, um, so. don't get me started on Dahmer either, for God's sake. No, no, <laughs> but it's it's uh, especially because it's this. I don't know. The serial killers, and then there's the fact that he got off on the. It's, it's like, it's a bit ooh, cheap, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would mitigate against that them. though by the fact that I think that Blatty writes this kind of stuff with a very serious mind about kind of morality and spiritual decay and stuff, and, mm. and I think that's that's to his credit. Even though I think some some sometimes it does, uh, you know. It, it overbalances the film towards that stuff, but you know. Yeah, yeah, no, he's, he's a very spiritual person by all accounts. The, the moment I, I realised I was going to enjoy a lot of this film was, I think Lieutenant Ginnerman's first speeches where he's he's saying to two of his fellow detectives, "What do you know? What Macbeth is about? It is a play. About, what, is, <laughs> what is the phrase he uses? The sickening of the moral sense, the dulling of the moral sense. That's what he says." Yeah. Um, and 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 that the whole the movie does have yeah, that yeah. kind of philosophic edge, which was in The Exorcist as well. Yeah, yeah, no, no. There's 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 good elements of it, and it, but it really is like a take take The Exorcist sequel mm. business out. Yeah, yeah. Just give it a new title. Yeah, and and then you can have. 15 years ago, there was a serial killer because it's because, like I said before, it's like yeah. you're making that jump to two yeah. stuff that yeah. happened before. Do you remember that? Do you remember that possession that happened in that house? I also, do you remember <laughs> that serial killer? Yeah, yeah. While we're on the subject of possession, do you remember that serial killer? Eh? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's, cl- it's clumsy. It's clumsy and crowbarred, and and just you you need a plot to be mm. a laser beam. I mean, I hate to, I hate to mention save the cat. But Save the Cat does have some wisdom in it. The screenwriting manual, yeah. Yeah, the screenwriting manual. But he he has this thing about um, <laughs> double mumbo jumbo. So you, I think, have I mentioned no. this on the pod before? If you have double mumbo jumbo, he says, beware of it because you, the, basically the, uh, the, uh, the the audience reacts badly to double mumbo jumbo. It's why Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull doesn't work because. It's got the yeah. usual Indiana Jones stuff yeah. and then aliens. Or science doesn't work because you've got God and aliens. Um, so, you know, you've got the mumbo jumbo of God <laughs> and then you've got the mumbo jumbo of aliens invading the earth that are allergic to water. I prefer the idiots. Oh, um, science doesn't work. Thank God I thought you said science doesn't work. <laughs> so, I thought this yeah, hang on, good. where are we going oh, with this? We've work. not got time for this. <laughs> <laughs> Don't wear your um, no, absolutely uh, do wear your masks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. No, no, and um, and in this, you've got you've got the audience tripping up over genuinely, genuinely. I thought, oh, this is because I've missed an episode. And this, if this is supposed to be a a film you could watch by yourself, and I genuinely thought I'd missed the whole yeah. movie. Yeah, well, that's true. Because they're flashing back to they're flashing back to two things that have happened. 
So I, I want to just talk for a couple of minutes, try and get a few points in, um, and then I'm gonna, uh, yes, so I can hand over to you two to to, to rant or not for the rest of the, of the time we've got. But I just want to <laughs> uh, mention a few things which occurred to me, um, because I think it would be easy to get kind of bogged down in, in pulling this stuff to bits. Um, when you know, there is wonderful stuff in this film, um, and it. And and uh, in some ways, the wonderful stuff is 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 the problem. Like I think, a major problem with the movie is that Lieutenant Kinderman is such a good character, and George C. Scott is so good, but there aren't really any other characters in the film. Um, the the the, uh, the the nearest thing to another significant character who you care about and get to know is Ed Flanders as Father Dyer, and he dies after half an hour. Um, and. And therefore, the rest of the movie is just you get to watch Kinderman talking to various people and trying to work through the plot and dealing with the fact that he's lost his friend. He's he's also been mourning the loss of his other friend for mm. 17 years, who he's now seeing resurrected somehow. Um, and he does there there isn't really any anything anybody of stature for him to discuss that with. So he, so basically, the movie is just George C. Scott standing there, looking sickened and shouting occasionally, and he's brilliant mm. at doing that. By the way, he was nominated for a Razzie, a Golden Raspberry Award, for his performance in this movie in 1990. <laughs> he didn't win though; he, he was beaten by Andrew Dice Clay. He would have, he would have refused it anyway. <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> yeah. acting is not a competition, even oh, at yeah. the other end. Um, I remember that. But you know. Very nice. Also, that's that. Also, that's really not fair on George C. Scott. That's morons not knowing yeah. that, that a bad film is not the fault yeah. of the fucking actors. No, and, <laughs> unless unless they're atrocious actors, yeah. but he is not. He, the best thing about a bad film, he is asked to deliver lines like "I believe in slime" and make them <laughs> sound good. Yeah. Uh, and he he does sort of manage that. I mean, I, you know, most of the rants in it are really great. I even quite like the cart bit, but I was going... The cart bit, which is, Ian, it's directly out of the novel of The Exorcist, but they cut it from the film, and Blatty loved it so much, he ported it into The Exorcist 3. And it is a lovely scene. so bizarre. It is so bizarre, but I mean, just, the way he delivers it is perfect. Just that, that whole kind it's of... So, it's great. It's a fine fish, I I have nothing against it. <laughs> you know, something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. But then he says, if I have to look at it, I'll kill it. And I'm thinking, well, isn't that the point, because you're going to eat it? <laughs> so are we not good here <laughs> yeah yeah why why do you have to keep it alive for a certain amount of time i, I don't know or, or was it thanksgiving or something yeah. like that it's, it's it starts off really quite really like you said it really is quite it's like as a sort of police procedure quite naturalistic with, police procedure with with sort of with a sort of supernatural but naturalistic supernatural mm. like the exorcist mm. It's kind of it kind of drew me in, and then I was a bit oh, like you said, oh, it's now it's actually it's a zombie, and yeah. it's 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 not only it's a zombie, but there's no mystery at all as to what he's doing because we just see it. Yeah, um, it's the old people, it's the mad people, it's the one through over the cuckoo's nest lookalikes, <laughs> and we've even got the guy who was Bibbit in it playing the nutter. So Brad Brad Dourif was was it one through over the cuckoo's yeah, nest yeah. Um, playing Billy Bibbit. So it's, it's. Uh, I mean, you could probably say it's a troubling way of going. We're scared of, we're scared of the mm -hmm. dementia people. They're mad. They're not they're getting out and murdering us. Yeah. Um, um, 
you know. I don't think the film leans too much on that, though. It's it's. Um, um, I think that there are other problems to get to before it does anything too severe with any of that. And what I think what it mainly does is yeah, yeah. Um, exploit our unease with very vulnerable people uh you know like mm-hmm. the elderly and the mentally infirm i love the bit the kind of quite cold bit um where kinderman is in the hospital and a little old lady wanders over to him and says are you my son <laughs> and and he puts his hand on yeah. her hand and says i'd be very proud to believe so yeah that was quite nice which is the most lovely comeback yeah. and the, and she just goes you're not my son <laughs> and I think they're kind of deliberately making her sound a bit like Pazuzu when when she says that. Um, yeah. There's some. Oh, by the way, do you know? Do you both know that just as in the Changeling, Scott was acting with his wife. Hmm. He sort of was in this. Uh, the voice of the demon that you hear towards the end in the exorcism scenes is the actress uh, Colleen Dewhurst who Scott had been married to and divorced from twice in the 1960s before he met Trish Vanderveer. Wow. So I don't know if they worked together on this. So she was literally a personal demon. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so, you know, maybe that's why he was so upset and so ranty. Um, Having said all that about, you know, how much I enjoy his his performance and his character, I think the reason... it took It's taken me literally 20 years to work this out because when I first watched it, I, I, I kind of thought that movie just fizzled out for me and I, I can't quite understand why. And I read a review which was by Anne Bilson in the monthly film bulletin that was published at the time the movie came out. And she said that the scene where Kinderman is in the uh, hospital and the old lady's crawling around on the ceiling but he doesn't notice is is emblematic of his character flaws and the film's failings as a whole and i remember thinking i don't i don't really understand what that means now having watched it again though i think i sort of do because basically although he's a really interesting character and screen presence he doesn't strike me as a particularly good detective because he <laughs> keeps missing Keeps missing really obvious things. Well, no, I was going to say, he goes to hospital, it's a statue, and it's got no head. Yes, and he doesn't notice. And they just walk past yeah. twice. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then also the bit later on where, um, you know, uh, the Brad Dourif Gemini killer character says to him, oh, oh you are uh, accepting an invite to the dance or something. And it's like that's clearly a veiled threat. Yeah, go home. <laughs> Find your children. <laughs> and he doesn't click that he, it's a threat until he happens to see a nurse whose name happens to be Julie and it makes him go, oh, I've got a daughter called Julie. Maybe she's in danger. <laughs> yeah. And also, I, hate, I hated all that K stuff. Yeah. That's that's like the sort of shit you come up with on a first draft when you were Oh, whatever serial killer waiting for the wet letter come. It's a bit shit. And then and then and then but then he had and then he had took like double mumma jumbo, but then he had another motive which was these are all people to do with the original exorcism. So I never quite nailed down who it was I was fighting. Mm. Was was it the Gemini killer or was it Pazuzu? Because it didn't seem like a fantastically crazy ancient demon to me, like it did in The Exorcist, who was trying to offend and you I, know. I think it was the Gemini killer. That's the thing. I think mostly the demon, whatever it is. I mean, they are quite 
vague about what it is. I think in the credits on IMDb, it lists Colleen Dewhurst as being the voice of Satan. Whereas in the original, they're deliberately coy about whether it's Satan or whether it's Pazuzu or whatever it is. Um, But I think most of Brad Dourif, all his rants, um, the critic Kim Newman called it his plot explanation rants, where he just sits there and just tells you what's happened for half the film. Um, I think he's supposed to be just the Geminicular speaking, and that's why he's petty and he's like, so Put my name in the press. Is, and this is double mumbo jumbo yeah. again. Then, so the the serial killer in a world that's naturalistic, yeah. because in the Exorcist we saw this is a very naturalistic. It's all about mm-hmm. science, and this is a very rare occurrence. Which is, oh my god, there is an actual yeah. demon in this little girl. This one's real. This is rare. But in the universe, in the same town. Actually, down the road, there's a serial killer who can astrally migrate <laughs> at the point of death. And where does he go? Oh, into a dead priest, because then I've got to reanimate him. <laughs> uh, and as luck would have it, there's a demon Dang. in there as well, who's who's always going to turn out that he's not as powerful as me, because I'm a mortal, and he's an ancient demon, and, and I'm just going to walk around and start talking about the press. <laughs> Oh, you've got to send this to the press. There's probably a demon in there going, no, who cares about the press? <laughs> and it's like under demon. the local paper as well. So come on. <laughs> Go and kill priests. No, I want to be on the front page. <laughs> you don't need to wear my badges. I'm 5,000 years old. Well, <laughs> I wasn't really sure what had happened last night when I watched it. And I think now I'm less sure. <laughs> Oh, right, okay. Yeah, I think uh, I, I might be oh, the well. same, actually. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, when c- because this movie has gained a, a great cult following in, in, in recent years and has been re-evaluated, there's a video on YouTube by a guy called Matthew Dansack. It's called Why the Exorcist 3 is the Greatest Psychological Thriller Ever Made. Is the answer... I've only ever seen the Exorcist no, three. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But I, but I don't think his argument's very good. But right. like, uh, even back in like <laughs> 1995, when the League of Gentlemen member Jeremy Dyson wrote his survey of horror films called Bright Darkness, he basically said mm. that all the great horror movies were made in the 1940s and 50s. The reason being, you can't do supernatural horror very well in color. It's got to be in black and white. And the only film that's come anywhere near to doing it anywhere near as well in recent times is The Exorcist 3. I remember reading that when I was at uni. So it does have a a strong following because of its kind of spiritual themes, because of its weird mixture of police procedural and the the atmospheric shooting and all that. And there are even people Mm. in recent years... I'll quickly sum up the, the, the basic production nightmare. What happened on The Exorcist 3, I think, as I remember, I've, I've tried to look at the sources again to get confirmation, but it's all a bit vague. But I think, basically, they started filming it, and it was going to be called Legion, and it was going to be a sequel to The Exorcist, but a standalone film. And then the producers went, no, you've got to call it The Exorcist 3, otherwise it won't make money. So Blassie went, okay. And then they went, wait a minute, how can you call it The Exorcist 3 if there isn't an exorcism in it? You have to put an exorcism mm. in it. So Blassie went, oh, all right then. <laughs> and he actually, and it, and he did it on the grounds that if, if I don't do it for them, they'll pay another director 
to to film this stuff and it won't be as good. So he did the best he could. Mm. And now, years mm. later, most of the original footage that Blatty shot for the original version of the film has been lost. But they found a VHS tape of the original cut, which was minus the exorcism and all that. And they were able to reconstruct it and put it on Blu-ray. And I haven't seen that version. Uh, apparently it's more akin to the book, but not entirely. But it mm. doesn't have the big spectacular ending. Um, and a lot of people have started saying, actually, the original end, well, the the, re- the theatrically released ending was better than the version that he wanted to to put together. It's more satisfying. And mm. even though the priest is kind of shoe- awkwardly shoehorned in, those scenes are cool. Um, I kind of disagree. Questions of Exorcist Three. Why does Nicole Williamson as Father Morning almost never appear in scenes with the other actors? The word almost is very important here. Because uh-huh. uh, did you notice that there is just one shot in the whole film in which Nicole Williamson and George C. Scott are in the same room? Um, yeah. And I've gone back and looked at it again and they're definitely both there. So they were clearly on set on the same days, and yet there's no other moment when they talk to each other. Um, I mean, Ian, you were saying, you know, um, you're a big fan of Nicole Williamson. I'm a big fan of Nicole Williamson, you know. I think we both love his um, Merlin in Excalibur, and it's a a kind of unexpected John Borman link to this um, non-John Borman Exorcist sequel. Um, Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, well, in a way, I've been thinking about this quite a lot, and it's um, what they've done in the movie doesn't work too well, um, obviously. But, um, and and I've been trying to solve the mystery of of why it's like that, and I can't, I've not been able to find any evidence about this, but it's just looking at the film and realising that Nicole Williamson is in a few scenes on his own, and then he's in the exorcism scene at the end. But even in that, he's only in one shot, which has George C. Scott in it, which is the bit where Kinderman walks into the room and yeah. Nicole Williamson kind of falls over in the corner, having been kind of assaulted by the demon and had his skin flayed off and stuff. Yeah. That's clearly done as one shot, and it's clear that both Williamson and Scott were both there at that time. But there's no other interaction between them at all. It, Otherwise, it completely looks like he's just been inserted think, I, into the I movie. Think, thinking about it, I think Nicole Williamson was in it because he's meant he's referenced. Yes, he's referenced as the exorcist with the white hair. Yes, so you know who he is when you see him. So it kind of suggests to me that he was in it, and he gets killed, and he's not in it very much. And the bits that they've added on are the are the really huge ex- exorcism bits. So maybe there was always going to be an exorcism, but it was going to be off camera because it's not his story. Right. It's obviously Scott's story. And so all that big fancy, it's the exorcist. Do you know what people really want? They want to see the liturgy being read out and people right. People, people doing the whole throwing holy water up. So I imagine that's the bit the studio says. So they probably said, let's do some, let's get Nicole Williamson back in. And get him shouting and, 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 you know, build up to his defeat. But do you think that um, 
in that if that's true and that's not a bad theory i haven't seen anything to back that that, that up and i'll have to watch the director's cut to see but um firstly it seems kind of strange to presumably he would have been a fairly minor character in the film then so why would you get nicole williamson who is a pretty big star to He's a big. He's not. He's not. He's not. He's a huge. He's a huge Shakespearean actor. Yeah, yeah. He's 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 very well known as an actor amongst in the industry. Yeah. His Macbeth is legendary, but in terms of movies and Hollywood, he's he's a, he's a, you know he's quite small. So I think it's perfectly acceptable, understandable that he was in it. He's Nicole Williamson, and he had some. Good scenes, and he's striking. Mm. But he was, he was a. But in terms of George C. Scott's the bloody lead, so Nicola Williamson being yeah. in it as a as a supporting character seems completely. I mean, that's what he is in it anyway. But yeah, if they, just, if they had scenes, scenes together, I mean, this is what strikes me as really strange because I did wonder if that scene where they mention Father Morning uh, was part oh. of the reshoots. Yeah, um, I mean, maybe it was. Um, I mean, it, Did you notice the bit where um, Kinderman tries to phone him up? There's a a scene in the hospital where he's on the phone and then the camera cuts away and you hear an obviously overdubbed line where George C. Scott goes, Hello, is Father Morning there? And someone goes, No, I'm afraid he's busy at the moment. (laughs) And then we see Kinderman waiting to ring again. And that's the only setup that we get that they have right. a, an ongoing relationship. And I wonder if it was that, as with the Jason Miller thing, um, basically, uh, the, the, because I think everything that they do in response to the studio edict of uh, of putting exorcism in it and all that, ah. it's very creative. And William Peter Blatty looks to me like he was going... Okay, so I didn't want them to make me do this, but seeing as we're doing it, I'm going to make the best job I can. And, you know, therefore you've got the very striking visuals that happen in the exorcism scene, which I think is quite um, effective and, and, the, and the gore and violence in there and things like that. Um, but, unfortunately, I think because of logistical things, maybe they couldn't do as much with it as they would would have liked, i.e., just as you couldn't, they had to, they had Jason Miller, but not for very much. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, that they, they did the reshoots and they had Nicole Williamson, they had Jason Miller, Miller, and they had George C. Scott, but they had them on different days and and they just couldn't yeah. really. Because I I I kind of thought, couldn't they even like film two halves of a phone call with George C. Scott on one end and Nicole Williamson on the other and edit them together? But yeah. equally, it would probably be even worse to have just one or two scenes setting up their relationship and then Nicol Williamson walks in at the end and dies. It's probably even worse doing that than having nothing. And, I, and in a way, maybe he just decided, I, I, I better, if I just imply that they're in touch but not show any of it, then it becomes yeah. more powerful. Yeah. It's, it's, it's another side of the 
kind of the mess. Basically, I think if they'd had the time and, and everyone's schedules, then you could have rebuilt it. So, that, so they um, they at least felt like they were, you know, you at least felt that, you know, they'd go into the room together. So it's a sort of repeat of The Exorcist and Caras going in yeah. in the first film. I don't but as it is, like, he goes off and just wanders into a secure unit and does an exorcism and gets killed. Well, that's the thing. We don't we don't know why he's going in there, who let him in. Um, there's nobody else around. It's really bizarre. And even though I think it is very um, stylishly done with the very sharp editing and all that, with his <coughs> entrance and all the doors opening and closing, um, it's great in a way what they've done with it, what they've managed to do with it, but it, it's, it doesn't fit. It, it's like something out of another film. Suddenly, in the last five minutes of the film, it's like an action movie with like doo 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 sound effects and doors slamming and things. And, it, oh, and, I mean, and the awful lightning as the, as the earth rips open. Oh, I quite like that, but 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 yeah, yeah. It, but no, I mean, I liked it, but yeah, it's like it's from a different film. Again, yeah, yeah. it's suddenly we yeah. are watching Excalibur or something, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's just all a sign of it's a bit of a mess, which is our ultimate review. A bit of a mess. Yes. It's. I think it's very telling that what happened. It went into development hell, not because because I think William Friedkin was attached. Mm. That was the original production, yeah, before the book was written. Yeah, Exorcist 2, no, Exorcist 2 was a mess, but they were like, even though it was dire, we still think we can get some out more money name. out of this. Yeah. You guys, out of the name. And so they were very much, yeah, well, let's make this. And it was going to be Exorcist 3 and 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 William Friedkin, who loves Blatty. You know, I was just reading a thing which was after Blatty's death, and he was just saying he's one of the most beautiful spiritual men and he's a close friend. But whatever happened, William Friedkin, when they were putting the story together, William Friedkin, obviously, creative differences warped. And I bet that's because all this shit with a serial killer just doesn't work as a sequel. As a standalone, separate horror Mm. movie, that's different. But Blatty set off trying to make this thing that, doesn't fit the thing that he's mm. famous for, and he did brilliantly. It doesn't fit. Mm. I mean, you, you, you quite often get this. I always feel this, this with Douglas Adams. Like, he had this amazing thing with Hitchhikers, and then I don't like a lot of his sequels because they, 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 you know, they get, they don't, it's in George Lucas as well. It's like they don't know the thing that they've done. They don't know it as well as we do. Like, maybe they can't see it from the outside. It's when a creator gets lumped in with um, something, a particular property that they are forced to repeat because they try and do other stuff, but they can't break away from it, I suppose, and then that's what you get. No one's forcing them, but yeah. But um, but it's also, Blatty could have gone, Blatty could have gone, and, th- and then it fell apart, and he, st- and he still wrote it as a novel that was a sequel. And I will say this, though, Legion, the novel, is a... I remember reading it and finding it fine. I, I enjoyed it. I remember bits of it. And the, the best bits of the film are the things that I remember from the novel, the the, the friendship and the characterizations. 
But yeah, I do yeah. remember that it seemed like a more satisfying story, and I think that's because in the book there are more suspects in the hospital. You know, he doesn't he just he doesn't just walk into one room and go, "Oh, here's the guy." There he is. There's, there's a bit of a mystery <laughs> well, he is, going he's on. Dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, th- I think as well. There, I think there's a sort of ghost of that in there when he's like, "Who are you? I'm the ridiculously spooky nurse who's obviously a red herring." True. And, uh, but but like you say, basically. Uh, it, yeah, it's a wasted opportunity, but it's just it's it's the fact that I think ultimately it's flawed from inception in that mm. it's an idea he had because of the Zodiac Killer, which it would have been better off going. Oh, I'm going to have a supernatural serial killer story. That'd be good. Mm. Yeah. But yeah. he then he then through what for whatever reason decided to to sort of soil the legacy of the amazing exorcist by oh, by, dear, by, dear. by having a sequel that doesn't quite doesn't fit with it I, well i mean this is just all personal opinion for me it, it does not fit at all and and i and i almost wish i hadn't seen it because to me it's a bit like <laughs> alien 3 in the, i now know where i now watch aliens and know you're yeah, doing all this fighting matter you're gonna drown in your hibernation pod and in this, oh, it's like, look at the exorcist. This is amazing. Yes, yeah, sacrifice yourself. Die, go down the steps. Oh, you're going to be a zombie. <laughs> it just cheapens, it cheapens the really good thing. Really does. Questions of The Exorcist 3. Does focusing on the story ruin the film's visual, thematic and atmospheric strengths? Now, Ian, I know that you're a writer and, you know, your first focus is always story and that's what's really come across in this <sighs> podcast. And I think, you know, I agree with everything you've said. Um, but, you know, I've, I've gone back and I've read uh, people's appreciations of the film and uh, in a way, everything that, there's the things that people seem to remember and resonate with them and why they think this movie is great are the performances, the characters, the dark themes, the moments, the striking visuals. Um, and I I wonder if you kind of have to forget about the story and just kind well, of put you, those you, together. You, you do, because there's no you know, cinematography, direction, the the the... You know, the cast are all uniformly brilliant, or not uniform, but they're all great. Yeah. It's, it, it's all the ingredients are there, and you can enjoy individual scenes. Like, I love the Amy Amy murder scene. Yeah. It really works. It's really, really long, um, and you know there's going to be a jump, and they manage to make you jump. Um, because, you know, if it was just her rushing out, Without any of that build-up, it wouldn't work. It's uh, you know, there's loads of good things in it. I think it's it's not just that I'm interested in story. I think the audience is as well. Because yeah. otherwise, if if this had a good story that worked, we'd all be talking about it. We've all have watched it years ago, and people would say it's one of those rare times when a sequel's as good as the original, etc., etc. Yeah, yeah. But it isn't, <laughs> and that, that that's down. Mostly, it's, it's down to the story in its beginning. I think I'd have been with, uh, I'd have been with William Friedkin going. I don't quite like this. Can we can we come up with a different way of doing a sequel? Mm. Because he loves Blatty, but walked early on. Yeah, 
from the project because Blatty was obsessed with the Zodiac Killer liking Exorcist, which <laughs> is is a silly thing to focus on if you ask me. I just don't think it works in its fundamental essence as a sequel to The Exorcist. And then on top of that, it got development hell. So the story he did have, which sort of made sense if you like that kind of thing, then gets fucked about with Jason Miller popping in, mm. Nicole Williamson getting crowbarred in, all these sort of things that don't quite work, and none of them made it any better. Maybe they sold a few more tickets. Well, and they got all the Exorcist three, but ultimately, it's why this is a flawed. It's not even a flawed masterpiece. It's just a flawed film. It's yeah. a film that you can switch on for ten minutes and go, "Oh, this seems really good." I watched the whole thing. Whole thing doesn't work. So you know, it's the difference between a good movie and a flawed movie. I mean, having said all that, um, and I see your point. I think that some of the things that were added because of studio pressure are really good and still don't don't make the film any better but also don't make it worse. It's more kind of a matter of taste. There's a very good video by Red Letter Media about Exorcist 3. It's on YouTube and I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, and, you know, they say that they're glad that Jason Miller was involved because the the kind of... It, that link to the original makes it a bit more resonant. And I don't so much mean in terms of the films being linked, but the relationship between the characters of Kinderman and Karras, that was a relationship that was really part of the original. And it's really good to have that relationship back. This is why I'd want to see the version with Brad Dourif, because were they able to recreate that with... Well, that's again like Jason Miller coming back. Even if you say... Well, let's, if, if they'd got enough Jason Miller and just erased Brad Dourif, that still makes you go, okay, so he looks like Jason Miller, but no one else looks like anyone else in the original either. So, in a way, you're better off going, let's just take Jason Miller out of it well, and he... just accept that Brad Dourif looks like George, looks yeah. like looks like Father Karras yeah. because that's the filmmaker. So, yeah. but either way, it's all it's all kind of it's all kind of flawed and it's all good, but yeah. Bringing Jason Miller in for half of it is is the worst of all possible worlds, if you ask me. Well, I would agree with you, except that I, th- I think two things. One, I do think that it, you only get it for a few seconds, but the the chemistry between Miller and uh, George C. Scott is remarkably like the chemistry between Miller and Lee J. Cobb. Um, by the way, it was yeah. Kim Newman in his review said the appropriately middle initialed George C. Scott replaces Lee J. Cobb, and that, that does, you know it's lovely that their names have the same rhythm. Um, yeah. And you know, I think it 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 only um, it only really has an impact for a few moments in the film, but they are powerful moments, and I think like the bit at the the very end where Father Karras comes back to himself and Miller says. Bill, now shoot me now, kill me now. Uh, that's yeah. that's really good, I think. Even though um, I yeah. I accept but, your point that it it it, it it's well. I, sorry, I think Ian. it would have been better off. I think he would have been better off. Yeah. To, uh, I mean, the, the whole thing's a mess. But yeah. Basically, I don't like his plot to start with. But if the whole thing is we are legion, then it could have been. This isn't supposed to look like. Yeah. Father Karras from the outside, but he's in there. Yeah. He's sort of half doing that and half not doing that, which is why it's 
such a such a thing that doesn't work yeah. at all. Yeah. You either either Jason Miller, you know, Father Karras looks like Brad Dourif. That's the zombie. But then when we see Jason Miller, he looks like a zombie, and Brad Dourif doesn't. So what the hell's going on? Who's the imaginary one? So what is the reality of what he's seeing? There's also this bit where um, Kinderman punches the the guy in the face, and yeah. so in reality he's presumably punching Jason Miller, but yeah. Brad Dourif turns around and has a bloodied nose, which just made me go, what is the reality of, of this? And that, it's, 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 the, whole, the whole thing is, again, I'll use the word, it's, a, it's just a mess. Yeah. It's a mess in which... And I can, I can, I mean, I'm sure if you were to be able to talk to Blatty, he'd go, it was a mess. This is, this was what we were dealing with because they're all great people. Yeah. But uh, trying to apply, you know, when things go wrong in creative things and you just, you're just going, we just need to get this damn thing made because we're on deadline. And then you just apply sticking plaster upon sticking plaster and you're fixing things that you kind of broke on your way. Yeah. And you just, in a way, so you end up with a flawed thing like this. Yeah. Nobody, you know, people would have been, the script that George C. Scott loved isn't what isn't the film we saw either. No. I mean, there's even... I bet, I, bet you, I bet you everyone involved was, that's a shame. That, had, that could have been a much better project. Brad DeRiff certainly was. Like the damn studios. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is why I want to see the version they did make. Um, uh, your point that it kind of soils the ending of the original or the spirit of the original because you, in a kind of Alien Three sense, you you've got this heroic sacrifice made by Father Karras at the end, but then he he he's, he's then possessed and and zombified and becomes the Gemini killer and whatever. Um, yeah. At first, I disagreed with that thinking about it because I thought that what it does is it, it again puts Karras in the position of making a sacrifice of himself to defeat the demon at the end of Exorcist Three. Uh, so it's yeah. the same ending, and I again, I, I because of of Jason Miller's performance and George C. Scott's, I I feel that sacrifice again, and and in a way. It, I, I felt it doesn't undo the ending of the original, it just restates it. However, I do recognise on thinking about it that even if you do that, and actually quite a lot of sequels do that, you know, that the, the creators haven't got a very clear idea of what to do next in the story, so instead they take a few steps back and just repeat the yeah, yeah. trajectory of the original. But if you yeah. do that, like in, in simple terms, like Jaws 2, you know they killed they killed the shark once, but another shark came along, so they'll kill it again. Um, you know, um, if you do that just by the act of making the defeat, uh, that making what happened at the end of the first film not be the only time it happens, you are reducing the importance of it because yeah, it can yeah. happen again and happen again. So therefore, you know, as I think you mentioned. There could be an Exorcist four or five, six, seven, where the demon just yeah. keeps coming back because every time they cast it out, it just comes back. Yeah, well, it's, it's also it's 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 the whole it's the whole confusion of who's possessing who, and is it the demon? Is it the Gemini killer? And why why are they all in Jason Miller's body? Except they're not. He looks like Brad Dourif. What's going on? The whole thing's a mess. Yeah, and and for Father Karras, I'd be much, I'd be. I mean, again, I'm talking about something I just kind of basically wish hadn't happened. 
Right. But but if Father Karras doesn't go to heaven at the end of, you know, he sacrificed himself, he's dead, maybe they could say, you killed yourself, Father Karras, and now you're in some... So maybe there's a, like, you know... Yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe he is damned and not hasn't ascended because he's on Earth and he wakes up and Pazuzu's with him and they've moved bodies. Mm. And so... Jason Miller popping up for a few minutes here and there with that ending, that would work. It's the fact that they go, they have, I was being on the electric chair that I whizzed over to where my body was dying. Oh, there was a demon in it. <laughs> yeah, that's shit. It's shit. And, and I'm sure when you're freaking tell Peter Blatty, that shit, can we do something else, please? Right. Can we, can we, can we set this in the same universe? Not in some Marvel version of of uh, Marvel <laughs> superheroes version of the Exorcist. Everyone just, everyone just teleports into each other's bodies. It's just uh, you know, it's, it's, to me that that's why I say it's flawed from its inception. Yeah. But yeah. all the other great things that come on top of it, it's flawed from its very inception. I do not like the plot that yeah. Blatty came up with, and I wouldn't have liked it in the I wouldn't have liked it in the book. I'm sure. Um, I don't like that idea that the serial killer it's just it's muddy and messy and not like the exorcist mm. and the baddie in the exorcist is Pazuzu yeah not not the Gemini killer who's Pazuzu in this he's just a sort of he's my boss he's my master is he is he in there then we, we're, we're a bit confused yeah. is he is he in there or were you just acting for him and did he go somewhere else when he got exercised, I'm a little bit confused. Well, it's. I think if you look at the ending, it it plays like it's the demon talking in the at the end of the film. But then they forget about the Gemini killer. The entire last ten minutes of the film, you know, all that exorcism stuff. They've forgotten about Brad Dourif and the Gemini killer at that point. It's literally just here's Jason Miller, here's a priest, the demon speaking, and George C. Scott's yeah. on the wall, and none of the rest of it matters. So. And all you have to do, and like I said in the original recording, all you have to do to get rid of the demon is shoot me in the head. Yeah. <laughs> but then, then because they can zoom around, like um, you know, yeah, it's one step away from having a CGI spirit launch into somebody else's head, which is fine in other universes, yeah, but yeah. not in the Exorcist's naturalistic universe. So basically, <laughs> shot him in the head. What Pazuzu is now in that cell. I'm just going to go and. In fact, all of us, let's go, let's move bodies. Exorcist 4. It's just <laughs> stupid. It's just stupid. Uh, I, wish it had, I, I do wish it had never happened. Oh, dear. Um, I, really, I, do, I do. The more I think about it, the more I think, just make it Legion, nothing to do with the Exorcist. I think if they'd like, done that, it would be a more whole the thing. Of the Exorcist, you know, is a new horror, Legion. Nothing to do with the bloody exorcist, but it's by the same writer. We'd have all been happier. But I, I would have been it, right? Because I, 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 I hate things being retrospectively ruined. Well, no, right. fair enough. No, I, I think that's a fair point. But I, I do love the fact that it's a thriller about Lieutenant Kinderman, who is a good character, played by a great actor, and you yeah, know, yeah. going through this kind of autumnal phase of his life and, and being increasingly sickened by the horrors around him and finding no way out of it. Um, yeah, yeah, well, he's got that sort of country, no country for old men feel to it. It's like, you know, 
I'm, you know, I'm a cop. I've made no difference. There's filth everywhere. Yeah. Um, and, and he doesn't believe in God. I think, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one to talk about as a writer because you can just go, oh, this is what you should have done. Okay, so if it's a sequel to The Exorcist, Pazuzu is on the loose. He got, you know, Barbara Karras got, got him out of the girl, out of Reagan, but he's on the loose. And what does he do? He pops into somebody and they become the Gemini killer. We don't need to have the Gemini killer, like, being a thing that happened a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, again, it's all where, it's all where you just, God, just, if you just made those, I don't know, he didn't work his story out. God bless him. Mm. It's a mess. Well, I'm sure he was probably told by William Friedkin and people. Like, you'd be there going, oh, it doesn't quite, what? So he was doing, I mean, I don't know. I'm saying the same thing over and over again now. But you know basically, what? You know what I'd like? I'd like someone to make basically, a... I'm, basically, I am... I am hugely disappointed now I finally watched this film. <laughs> despite, all, despite all its great things. Oh dear, that's a shame. Oh well. But, you know, yeah. in future maybe it will prove to be the seed of something great that is made. I'd love to hear it as a radio play or, or something. Well, I was thinking, yeah, an audio version of Legion. Mm. But not, you know, but not... Not the Exorcist sequel, just Legion, with the strings cut, so it can be its own tone, it can be its own universe. Yeah. Where people do possess serial killers, or serial killers are are because of demons, or yeah. this one is anyway. Have you ever seen a film called Fallen with um, James Gandolfini? That, no. That's basically the plot of that. 1997, uh, I think, Gregory Hoblet directed it. It's quite good. Um, yeah, so it has been done. <laughs> it also, this, this, this also, I never said anything. It also reminded me of that Eric Banner movie, uh, Deliver Us from Evil, which was, because it was its own universe, was a New York cop dealing with evil that, you know, oh, yeah. satanic murders, and it turns out there's a supernatural element. And because it's not a sequel to anything, it's, it's, you know, every film can make its own rules. It's kind of actually quite a nifty little horror with okay. Eric Banner. I don't mm. think I don't think that many people watched it, but um, I've got it. It's actually it's actually you know it's actually worth worth watching if you haven't seen it. Okay, all right, that's one to check out. And it's then. got a great soundtrack. <laughs> then I'm completely sold. All right, brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Stella, is there anything you'd like to say about the Exorcist Three before we spin on from that topic? <laughs> No. <laughs> I think we've kind of covered it. There's a lot to say. There's a lot. Um, I think we've covered it. Yeah. And I, I think we, we've maybe made this movie sound like less of a missed classic than maybe the title of our episode will suggest it is. just missed. But, um, <laughs> but on the other hand, I think it's good to have alternative voices. Yeah. I think, I think could, you, could you put a question mark at the end? Missed classic? Missed classic? <laughs> 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 Might just do that. All right, so... Thank you, guys. Before Stella and Ian and I return with our recommendations, we're going to go over to Howard, who's joining us for the first of the weekly Bag of Death segments. Who knows what we're going to talk bag about of next death. week. Oh, Howard. The Bag of Death. <laughs> and we're going over there now. Hello, everybody. So, this is The Bag of Death, and... 
This is an item that we used to have on the podcast years ago and that we're delighted to be bringing back. And I'm even more delighted that I'm going to be joined once again by Howard. Hello, sir. Hello, Hello there. Yes, back by popular demand. Absolutely. Millions of people have been demanding this to come back. They've, they've been protesting in the streets. <laughs> oh, and that's what it's all about. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they. That's what that was all about. That's what they were on the rampage. Sure. And uh, and welcome uh, to the podcast, your first podcast of the new year, twenty twenty one. So happy new year, sir. Yes, and happy new year to you. Yes, although mm-hmm. it has to be said, it's not, <laughs> it's not uh, noticeably different from last year at the moment. Things are still pretty rough, um, but. Um, Yes, but we remain uh, optimistic, and just by doing this... I'm an optimist, I'm an optimist, we will get over this, no doubt about it, I've been saying that all the way through, and I do believe that, I genuinely do believe that. It's just it might take a bit of time, that's all, but... Uh, You're a wonderful man, perseverance, that's what it's all about. Okay, yes. so I'm, in this bag of death I have basically all the English language horror films that I think you and I have both seen. That's um, a lot. It's possible... Well, obviously, both of us have seen various non-English language horror films, but I actually don't think we've both seen the same ones. So these are all English language, but they're a mixture of British and American. Right. So, I, and, and I will reach into the bag at random, rummage around and produce a film, and we'll have no idea what it is or how recently we've seen it. So here we go. If we could afford a drum roll, there would be one. But listen to this. That's rummaging. Oh, that's rummaging. And I have a piece of paper in my hand. It says, oh my God, it, 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 this is ordained. It says, the fog. The fog. Oh, well, that's excellent. So, your favourite American horror film, I believe, Howard. It's my favourite American horror film, yes, made by John Carpenter, came out in 1979. Again, when we talk about these films, I always try and remember the circumstances in which I first watched it, because I think that's an important thing. Yeah. Uh, and The Fog was on, actually, it was on at Christmas time, or just around about the New Year or something. It was like one of the big films of its year. Uh, and I was still at school when it was on, because I remember us all talking about it the next day, or, or when we all got back to school. And everybody loved it. Everybody thought it was absolutely terrific. And I, I loved it, I thought. I don't think I'd even seen Halloween then. I think this was the first John Carpenter film I ever saw. And I didn't know that much about it, because I was, was quite young. But it was kind of like, one of the first, it's not very gory, but it's one of the kind of the first modern American, as it were, horror films that was shown on TV. Um, up to then, it had been mainly all the Hammer films and everything. This one of the first kind of American, new wave American ones, if you like, that was on, and it was just wow. I was just, um, and over the years, I've I've come to love it even more. Kind of, I, I just think it's so well made. It doesn't get great reviews all the time, but uh, people like it. But they don't think it's as good as Halloween or Assault on Precinct Thirteen and stuff. But I love it. I, yes, it is my favourite American horror film. I mean, I, I think that it doesn't get great reviews, but there are lots of people like yourself for whom it was a, a big part of, of their youth or their horror growth. Um, and uh, I, I would certainly count myself among that crowd. So with this film, the problem is you and I will probably have far more to talk about it than we can possibly fit into 10, 15 minutes. And I, I think we'll probably come back to it on the podcast at some point. Um, I watched it shortly following my exposure to Halloween. It was, um, in fact, pretty much exactly the same way. I th- 
As with Halloween, I think my sister Maureen taped it for me off, possibly UK Gold. Um, And I think by that point, I'd already seen Halloween 2 and been disappointed with it. Um, So I really wanted to see something else that was like Halloween and as good. Um, And and I went into watching The Fog with those hopes. And uh, I was pretty much, uh, those expectations were pretty much met. Um, you know, it, it, it has everything that, that Halloween had importantly for me. It's a bit more violent than Halloween, but, you know, in terms of the the slow, deliberate atmosphere, um, the, the kind of foreboding, omnipresent music, The Fog and Halloween both have a credit, a joke credit at the end, which is music performed by the Bowling Green Philharmonic Orchestra. Well, it's actually John Carpenter and his synthesizer and Dan Wyman. Um, and Bowling Green, I think, is the town in Kentucky that um, Carpenter came from. Oh, right, is it? Oh, yeah. Because I used to go to a pub called the Bowling Green, so I thought, I thought it might have been a... That's <laughs> a good a name for a pub, yeah. I, I know a few. Um, and... One thing that John Carpenter was brilliant at in all his earlier films, it's creating atmosphere. All those early films are so atmospheric. It's through photography, it's through music, and these kind of like long, slow takes and everything. I mean, just the opening where the town starts going a bit mad and the petrol pumps start working and all the lights come on and chat. It's so well done because it's just, it's not, it's done so kind of, it's it's very stylish. You know, what he does, it's sort of, you know, I I don't, it's just, it's just so atmospheric and just so eerie. you know what? I, I'll I'll try and do you an old party piece of mine now, which is um, uh, I used to do impressions of Mark Cousins when he presented Movie Drome, and he he did a Movie Drome about the fog once, and I can remember it almost verbatim, and and he goes, watch the opening sequence, and you know you're in Carpenter Land. It's quiet at night in a nothing sort of place. Long lens shots by Dean Cundy, who went on to photograph Back to the Future and Jurassic Park, pick out details. Um, Thank you. Um, (laughs) And he also said a really interesting comment, which is that, um, quote, To be honest, I didn't think much of it when I rewatched it with a group of friends recently, but its rhythms and voices have stayed with me. Um, I'll stop that now. and, but I think that's really a really good point because in in a way the plot of the movie always kind of is a bit vague to me. But the um, the mood and the, and the and the location and the atmosphere and some of the characters um, are always pretty vital and 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 have meant that every time I've gone back and rewatched it, I've got the DVD now. Um, it always works really well, but um, I'm aware that we're we're kind of enthusing about this film in a way that might not be too comprehensible to people who don't know it. How would you describe the fog to somebody who'd never seen it or heard of it, Howard? Well, I suppose it's a ghost story, isn't it? It's sort of it's set in this town that's by the sea, and there's this mysterious fog. A hundred years ago, something terrible happened. Some sailors uh, were murdered. Um, I don't go too much into it because I want to. Because uh, I can't remember. The <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But people were murdered, uh, and so a hundred years later, uh, these all these ghostly sailors come back and start killing people. They're only supposed to kill six people, so you know there's there's not too many murders in it. Yeah, but uh, yeah. but and the main motif is that 
both the incident 100 years ago and the return 100 years later are heralded by this sinister fog bank rolling in. Um, as John Houseman says in the opening scene, suddenly, out of the night, the fog rolled in. Um, and, uh, and, and apparently the whole thing was inspired by um, when John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, who, were, um, who had been an item but had already uh, broken up by the time the movie was made, they travelled to the UK on a, probably promoting Assaults on Precinct 13 or maybe Halloween, and they went to visit Stonehenge and were just uh, lost in fog while they were there. And Carpenter started thinking, what, what if something was inside this fog? Um, yeah. And that was the, the concept that they shot the movie on. After they had done a rough cut, um, they found that, or, or Carpenter found that he thought it was too mysterious. They didn't really show what was in the fog. The horror was kind of in people disappearing into the fog and not coming back. Um, yeah. But he thought that the audiences would need more than that. So therefore you get glimpses of these frightening, cadaverous, pirate-like figures who emerge from the fog and, and attack people. But you never get a really good look at them, at least not until the end. But enough to be kind of many. It wasn't quite gruesome enough for modern audiences. It came out after Friday the Thirteenth came out, so they had to had had a few gory bits just to make it a bit more commercial. I did read that somewhere. I don't know whether that's true or not. Um, I think it might have been. It was that time, and it was that kind of atmosphere that might have provoked him to think in that direction, much as he did when he was superintending the production of Halloween Two and making that more violent. and he, he also claimed that when he watched the rough cut of The Fog, which was non-violent and was kind of very much going for a kind of Val Luton feel of, of just not showing anything, really, and, and relying on the audience's imagination, he said it just didn't work somehow. Yeah. Um, no, I suppose that would be a bit too nebulous, wouldn't it? Be a bit too vague. You do need those sailors. Because the, 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 the scene on the, the three fellas on the ship... Yeah, where they get killed, but these you know the sailors with the hooks and everything, the ghosts with the hooks. I mean that works really well. And and when you do see the 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 ghost's face at the end, when Adrian Barbo is climbing up the tower, yeah, yeah, with more worm infested face. I mean it does it does work really well. I mean by modern standards, it's it's all it's not gruesome at all. You know compared to some of the things now. So no, uh, and I do like it. I do like it because it is it is kind of quite restrained. And quite sedate in a way, and it just goes at its own. But there's one scene, and it's not even a scene; it's just like a transition in the fog, which I absolutely love, and just kind of sums up why I love John Carpenter, why I love this film. And it's after the scene where Jamie Lee and Tom Atkins are in the hospital, and the guy's got up who's supposed to be dead, and he's got up from the off the slab, and he walks towards her, up behind her, and he falls behind her, and he draws three on the floor. Yeah. You know? And Doctor Fibes comes in. Yes, Doctor Fibes played by Darwin Joston. Yeah. Austin, really Darwin Justin. Uh, and then there's a scene just showing various shots of the town and the bay and everything, and it's getting steadily darker. And the only sound is the sound of a foghorn. It's really mournful sound of a foghorn. And the music is do do do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then it goes to the bit where Janet Lee's doing a speech or whatever. And it's brilliant. I mean, it doesn't sound brilliant. It's just a kind of a thing that people might not notice. It's just showing mm. the town as it gets dark. But I just think it's so... It's kind of like a montage sequence of just different shots. of the. I just think with the sound of the foghorn, 
just makes it so atmospheric and so eerie and so kind of ethereal and so weird. And then you, you go into the bit where it's dark and then uh, it's it's just a brilliant scene, which which I, I just think is absolutely wonderful and so kind of, it is like stylish. It's quite gentle and everything, but yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's just the sound. I mean, John Carpenter's use of music and his use of sound, I think, is just terrific. I mean, he... he no, I think it's, it's music, peerless I, I, for me, yeah. yeah. It's also got a great cast, yeah. As well, was uh, Janet Lee and Adrian Barbo and Jamie Lee and Tom Atkin, Hal Holbrook, John Houseman, and the twenty third of April. Yes. Although, I, 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 I'm sure anybody watching it the first time is expecting John Houseman to come back sometime. Yeah, um, because the they had him for a day, and so they just filmed that because he cost a lot of money because he was a big star then. Yeah, What's yeah. Well, it's a special appearance by John yeah. Houseman, doesn't it? And he's out of it before the, the credits have gone up. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, so he's there doing it. Uh, and um, even in the... And, yeah, getting Darwin Justin from Assault of Precinct 13 to do a cameo and all this stuff. Well, I did feel a bit there. sad about that, to be honest. Last time I watched it, because I hadn't realised he was in it the first few times I watched it, because it is such a small part. And when yeah. you watch Darwin Justin in Assault on Precinct 13, he's so great. And you yeah. think, why didn't this man go on to be a huge star? Um, well, and then reading about him, uh, you know, later on, he, he kind of, uh, well, he stopped acting entirely and became a transport captain on Hollywood productions. Yeah, yeah, um, I read that, yes. He was sort of like in charge of all the vehicles and everything. And, and you feel I, like... Austin Stoker and Darwin Johnson didn't become big stars after Assault and Policing 13 is one of the great mysteries of film. It, it, it is. Of, but, and I, I do wonder, in a way, why John Carpenter didn't stick with them. Because he does stick with nearly everybody else, you know. There's a definite company feel. I mean, this, the fog is the first appearance of Buck Flower, who goes on to be in several Carpenter films, and and there's there's people like Peter Jason. There's obviously and the big the kind of lead actors like Jamie Lee and Donald Pleasance um, and Tom Atkins. They're all in kind of multiple productions. Um, but Darren Justin and Austin Stoker just kind of get left behind, and I do think. I don't know what happens because there's parts for them. I mean, as good as Tom Atkins is, and he is good, I can see Darwin Justin playing that part. Yeah, yeah. The kind of like because he's supposed to be, a, you know, he's not young. But then the guy Tom Atkins isn't young, so he, he you know he could play that brawny lead, and and so Darwin Justin could have played the sheriff in Halloween. Austin Stoker could have played the sheriff in Halloween. So I don't, yeah, I don't know why mm. he didn't use him and why other people didn't use him. Yeah, it's very it's odd. Um, and obviously, Darwin Justin uh, later died fairly young. I think he died yeah. in the early 90s. Austin Stoker, I think, is still around and has been teaching acting for decades yeah. now. But Well, he'd be a good teacher because he was certainly a good actor. Yeah, yeah, he was great. So um, I think we should wrap up talk of The Fog for now. I think we'll definitely yeah. come back to that film. Because there's so much to say about it, and it is it is my it is my favorite American horror film. I've got a lot of favorite American horror films. It just works for me. I just find it so atmospheric and moody and intriguing and um, and original, and all the the Carpenter qualities like the music and like the photography and like the direction and like just the atmosphere are just really all work together really well. Yeah, yeah. It's um, again, it's photographed by Dean Condy who did Halloween and worked with Carpenter regularly until Big Trouble in Little China in 1986. Um, no, it's just fantastic. You make me, you're making me want to watch it again. 
Um, yeah. And I'm so glad that I've got the DVD. Um, brilliant. Well, that was the first bag of death of 2021. So thank you so much, Howard. All right. Until next time. Oh, I miss Howard. That was brilliant. <laughs> Bless him. It's lovely to have him back in some form. All right. So we've, we've only got a couple of minutes, guys. Uh, recommendations for this week. Uh, Stella, what's yeah. yours? Um, my recommendation is I'm going to stick with the serial killers, but a better um, telling of the story. It's called Falling for a Killer, and it's on Amazon. Um, it's about Ted Bundy, also a massive wanker. But <laughs> this, instead of focusing on... Oh, I hear about this guy. Instead of focusing on him and what he did and all the stuff that he wanted and all that nonsense, this one speaks to um, his girlfriend and his adopted daughter. So his girlfriend was Elizabeth Kendall and her daughter Molly and also other female survivors. And it's more of a look at the sort of the culture wars and the feminist movement in the 1970s and how that sort of collided with Bundy. Um, and in terms of who it speaks to, and they're very, very honest and candid and very... Um, fiery discussions of what of the events is it's really really good one yeah falling for a killer on amazon and i will give a warning and a heads up it does have some crime scene photographs and it is a bit brutal at times right okay thank you very much stella ian what are you recommending this week <laughs> um i've just spent the week raving as you may have seen on facebook um ah, yes. about it's a sin which is is not horror is not uh, is not cult or anything like that, but it's Russell T. Davis's magnum opus about the. And it is dealing with a real life horror, though, in a yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. But not not necessarily horrifically. Oh yeah, yeah, but but yeah, t- t- tonally it's it's far removed from uh, what we usually talk yeah. about. It's uh, he's talking about it's basically the AIDS pandemic from the point of view of. Uh, a flat of well, you know, a, a handful of a handful of gay men in London, and and a uh, a straight woman who's based on a real life woman who became who becomes a huge um, activist, and it's it's just one of the uh, most amazing televisual experiences I've had in a long time. Um, wow! Like I watched it. Because I actually had a whole weekend, and I was like, I've got to watch this because um, it's the sort of thing that, you know, it'd be weird if I hadn't watched it because everyone will be wanting to know. You know, I'll have a meeting, and if I haven't watched it, it's like, do you really want to work at TV? And you haven't, you haven't, why haven't you watched that thing? But anyway, um, but also it's Russell T. Davis, who, who, to be fair, I love Russell T. Davis, and occasionally I don't like his tone. Occasionally mm. there's, there's things I don't quite like, but in this, it was just the it just it's so it's 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 life affirming and it's also so so brutally so brutally real um mm. and heart wrenching and it's just and because it's fictional but you know everything about it feels so real because it's all it's all based on stuff that really happened yeah my social media this week has been alight with people going, it's incredible, you must watch it, yeah. you must watch it. Uh, but I, but on Saturday, I watched, it's five episodes, they're all on all four. I watched all five episodes um, in it, during the day while Elliot was running around the house and being upstairs, but I basically just went, fuck it, I'm watching TV all day. 
and I watched. <laughs> I watched. We watched Camp Cretaceous, which is also a recommendation. In between, <laughs> in, in between watching Camp Cretaceous, I then I then got into watching, and I watched all five episodes into the night after Elliot had gone to bed as well, and mm. sort of towards the end of the night, I'd finished watching it, and Kelly Kelly came down, and I was holding a pillow and crying. And she thought I'd had some bad news on the, you know, like tragic news on the telephone or something. And I went, I just went, no, it's, it's just, this is so amazing. Uh, <laughs> it's so sad. So he does have a softer side, everyone. Uh, yeah. No, no, and, and that's that's the power, the power of it's, you know, that's the power of drama. I just watched a flat screen mm. with some people pretending and it had done that to me. And then the next day, Kelly was so inspired to watch it that the next day we decided to sack everything off. With and Elliot had another day running around the house while we, <laughs> while we watched while we watched this again. And I just it just second time felt like the first time. I was still right. in wow a mess. And then right. I was in a double mess because I was there with Kelly being in a mess. <laughs> wow, I'm gonna watch it. That's a major recommendation. It is, isn't it? Basically, I watched it back to back, and there's not many things I've done that to. At least given it a bit of a pause. That's brilliant. And no, I'm definitely going to watch it. Oh, it's just, it's just, I mean, it's, it's even got flaws in it. I mean, it's brilliant. I'm looking forward to talking to students about it because it's got some, it's masterful. Yeah. And then the best thing about it for students is you can talk about the stuff that's a bit wrong with it. So, mm. you know, all their talking points at least, not necessarily wrong. But, um, I, I, but, and I've just, just before I came here, I just had a, with the Writers Guild, we just had Russell T. Davis doing a Zoom. Clang. Clang, yeah, well, that, we haven't had any clang. Um, <laughs> but what I also, what he told us is actually, because it does feel a bit like, oh, it feels like there's an episode missing. And he, and somebody even said that in his Zoom, and he went, well, there's an episode missing. <laughs> so, All right. he wrote an yeah, episode six they didn't have the money for. So, oh. <laughs> so oh, well. it still works because it goes through time from 1981 mm. to 1991, and apparently episode six was present day. So I think they should bloody make it, make it a 90 minute, so it's like a one off. Yeah. Maybe they it. will if, with the success of it. Just do yeah, it yeah. Once, we, once we can make TV again safely. Yeah. So yeah, 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 just do it. I really, really hope you do. Anyway, I'm rambling on. We're gonna have to wrap up. But that was a Mondo recommendation. We're definitely going to take that to heart. Um, I'm going to say as my final note, RIP Larry King. I don't know if you both noticed he's in The Exorcist 3 and he died over the last week from COVID-19. Poor guy. Uh, The American talk show host, bless him. Good to see him, though. Um, Okay, thank you so much, Stella. Thank you so much, Ian. We'll be back next week. I don't know what with, but we'll be back. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited Presented by Ian Winterton, Stella Gaynor T.D. Velasquez and Howard Whittaker Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. 
please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com, for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages, at AndNowPod or at LeeCushingPod. Follow us on Twitter, at AndNowPodcast or at LeeCushingPodcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash and now podcast. And now the podcast stops.